it's about freedom for life. Money in the Federal Reserve. Why are we deciding to do this as our third episode? What's so important about it? Well, we decided to do it because, for starters, money is probably one of the most powerful elements of anybody's life. We are, our whole lives are totally controlled around money. And the issue is, is it's such an important part of our lives, yet almost nobody knows anything about how it's created, its history, what the Federal Reserve is, why does money impact our lives to the extent that it does. So I think we just wanted to illuminate. That is, uh, that's the real interesting part where the the money is so influential in our lives, yet nobody seems to really care about looking into it and learning about it and seeing it for what we're going to talk about is the sham of what it is. It's Which is actually kind of intentional when you think about it, because the people who control the money don't want you to know why we don't. They don't want you to know how it's been created why they use it for the purposes that they use it for, why we pay taxes, why there's poverty, why there's war. They're all influenced by money. Oh, that's definitely the, the obfuscation of it is definitely a critical part of... You don't want to look into it because it is convoluted and complicated, and honestly, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so that's <laughs> like a part of the biggest issue. You know, when you are looking into it, you're talking about things that don't really make any sense. Or matter, actually. Like or, when you... or matter, yes. Um so uh, this is going to be money in the Federal Reserve. So we're gonna; those are going to be two distinct kind of parts of this that we're going to talk about. Money itself, the religion of money, as well as the institution that is the Federal Reserve, the privately owned bank that controls our lives, which has been used on the global scale now. This is how they are. They are bringing things about on the global scale through the model of what the Federal Reserve was and continues to be. Um, so with that, let's start with money. I was also just aside. I was thinking about what we didn't really talk about what a name of this is going to be. I was thinking money in the Federal Reserve, modern day feudalism. That was kind of the, the <laughs> yeah, way that's I a good was one. going. Yeah. Um, but we'll talk about that after. But we, we got to get a name for the show. So. Let's first talk about the fact that human beings lived on the planet for a very long time without money. money. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because when you speak to people about money, money is one of those things that they will try to convince you of that you cannot live without and that to not have money would mean to not be able to live and survive and thrive. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's... The one of the the things I just want to bring out is that the human species lived on this planet for a very long time without needing money at all. And we'll we'll define what money is. Money is that medium of exchange. It's it's a typically a physical thing. And that is the medium through which you exchange energy. Money is just a representation in the 3D world of energy. Mm -hmm. That's the the tool that it is supposed to serve. But before that, you had your your other common economic systems, the one that is always taught about in school and that is always regurgitated to you about how bad it is, is the barter system where you are exchanging physical goods. And those physical goods that you're exchanging are not money because they are 
valued in themselves. They are not something that you place value on solely that you so that you can exchange it. It's something like an animal or a good you, you've created or something you've invested your time on that has intrinsic value in itself. And not just intrinsic value to you, but to the person who's receiving it. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, for example, say something broke at my house and you came over to fix it. So the intrinsic value is you coming over and fixing the repair at my house. And then I give you a bushel of tomatoes because you don't have tomatoes at your house. So we are both receiving value yeah, you're, that benefits you're, both of us. And in, in that situation, you're exchanging time and labor, which... Uh... I'll t I, I'll talk about what I view as like real money versus money, man's money in terms of what people refer to when they say the word money. Um, but yeah, it, it can be, it is an exchange of energy. And the thing with the barter system is that would be a very individual type of exchange for exactly what you're doing. And that's where, you know, the gripes of the barter system is, well, it's impractical because it, it involves... You can't civilize a society with barter and trade. Yeah, you can't unify them, bring them into a whole, um, which is where later on I'm going to discuss how I'm through uh, researching for this podcast. I am really starting to associate money with the empire, like the money of a government is what represents its influence and power in the world. And when the money dies and stops being used, it has that the empire dies or has turned into something new. So I, I'm starting to really view money as that tool of authority to, which is, I mean, you know, the feudal lord saying, we own this land, you need to pay us money just to live on this land, versus where something in like a barter system, you're just growing up living free and you're not being put under a debt system of that I owe you something simply for my existence, which in today's world, when you're born, that is exactly what you're placed mm -hmm. into. No, the barter system was just about survival. You know, yeah. existing. And when you were in that position of survival, you understood what was really valuable. Mm -hmm. There was no doubt in your mind about the value of something. The value of something was something that kept you alive or that directly made your life easier to survive or helped the other person around you survive. And that's where uh, talking about the barter and the gift economy is that you cared about the other people around you doing well mm -hmm. because if the other people around you did well, they were the same people that were helping you and lending hands to help you survive. You mean community? Yeah, <laughs> which as we discussed in the education podcast, community is all but gone. It, yeah. is, it, has been, it has been gutted out and replaced by networks and by institutions. But that, that communal aspect of actually genuinely caring about another human being and wanting them to do well so that out of your own care for them because they also help you do well and survive and and, and then make everybody it in succeeds yes. yeah yeah and that is exactly it's bringing everybody up it's not this screw you give me money type of attitude um now with barter that is the direct exchange now as you said you know it could be it could be more like of a labor or a time thing or but with the barter, you're typically saying, well, I'll give you this for that. And mm -hmm. it, it's set on the exchange in the moment, whereas something like a gift economy and gift economy was the one I found very interesting when I first learned about it, because 
that was the one I was never told about in school. No, neither was I. I was only told about the barter economy, which, as I said, is the, well, I'll give you this, but I must have this in return. Usually right now, it's like an, it's an immediate thing closer to the transaction of money. Whereas with the gift economy, you are gifting things. And just as that same community nature, you understand, I will put this out there. I will help you out. And yeah, you do expect at some point that will be returned to me. It just doesn't have to be right now. It could be you, and a you ha- and you. Days, you're not setting months. the the rules onto how that'll be. You mm-hmm. you know it it will come to you naturally. This idea that what you put out into the universe is what you will receive back. And again, that also involves you kind of need community in that way because you need to entrust that by putting out you will receive in return. Mm-hmm. But with something like a gift economy, it creates a uh, it's like a positive debt. You're intertwining your lives together. And there is no, I mean, we'll talk about part of money is, you know, having a rigid bookkeeping system of debts. Like you need to have all debts like fully understood, fully on the books, fully controlled, know exactly how much you owe me. Whereas with these barter and gift economies, things were much more fluid. They weren't, (laughs) you weren't running around obsessing over exactly how much you owe me. It was more like, yeah, you probably would get angry if you noticed somebody was just taking, they were just receiving and they weren't contributing to the community. But what do you think is going to happen to that person? They're going to, they're going to stop receiving the gifts Gifts, from the community. And in these kind of times that we're talking about, that means death. When the community ri- gets rid of you, when the community pushes you out, that typically means you're going to go die alone in, in the woods. So you're mm-hmm. going to die alone in nature rather than having that community and that support system to to help you to help you live. But I think that's just the most that like positive debt idea, the intertwining of of lives around the others around you and not having this exact measurement of the debt of exactly how much you owe me and trying to to rigidly keep track of that in a material way it it really shows where the the human mindset is nowadays that that is the the ultimate concern is keeping track of this material debt you are enslaved by your debt yeah which is where these barter and gift economies and these communities as I as we said, you know, you you were born into the world free. You were not born into the world with a debt collar put around you and saying, I own this land. You owe me money for it. I own these goods. You owe me money for it. No, you were living. You were free and you were a part of nature, which that to me is nature. Nature is the abundance nature provides. And you understood that, which is why you weren't trying to operate in this super scarce scarcity driven system. You were which scarce, scarcity is actually man-made. Yeah, it, it's a man-made concept. Any monetary system using any type of currency operates out of the conditions of scarcity, mm-hmm. fear, and lack. It doesn't matter what currency you can make a currency out of literally anything. Uh, tally sticks of ink, like you can literally make it out of wood. You can make it out of shell. Currency could be anything. Uh, but I think that's a nice transition into. Let's talk about these terms where we're using pretty regularly here. And that's going to be, obviously, we already said money. Money is the exchange of value. Money is energy. It is that medium of exchange to uh, take one thing, convert it into money, and then be able to convert it out into something else. Mm -hmm. And that's where... It's also agreed upon, which I think you were missing your definition. It has to be a mutually agreed upon exchange. Like, we look at the dollar... And we 
know that we can go to the store and buy things because that is an acceptable medium. Yeah, like that... I can't go to the store with shelves and say, "Here, <laughs> I want to no, buy it, something." And that's uh, I'll talk about how the only power money has is our faith yeah, in it. Yes, if if uh, people didn't have faith in a Federal Reserve note, the Federal Reserve note would be as meaningless as mm-hmm. what it is, which is just a piece of paper. It's only the faith in belief that we put into it that will give it the power of exchange. And as I'll talk about later, part of the issue with that as well is in the current world we live in, those monolithic mediums of exchange, such as Federal Reserve notes, can only exist in a monolithic way because of a system of violence and authority Mm -hmm. that backs them. Uh, And that's where if we lived in a truly free world where you could just decide whatever money, whatever currency we're going to use, you would still run into very similar issues to that of barter where, you know, this guy only wants silver and this guy only wants gold and you only have silver, you only have gold or you only have this stamped coin or that stamped coin. And it would be harder to exchange just as people are claiming, well, you just can't do any type of barter because it would be too hard to figure out an exchange uh, through two different money mediums. Mm -hmm. So I think you'd run into similar issues like that. Uh, But again, money money, uh, is energy. When you say something is expensive, you're saying it's going to take a lot of energy. And with that, I'm going to use the term real money. And what I call real money is time, energy and attention. And this is really where my main gripe is with money is that I view it as being completely unnecessary. Whereas we can exchange these real monies, we can give somebody our actual time, we can give someone our actual attention, and we can give someone our actual energy rather than needing to convert it into a federally controlled substance to then export it out and and get whatever we need. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's where I view money as just a replacement for those things. And through replacing those things, money, I think, also really messes with our perceived value of things. When we filter everything through into this medium of money, we we begin to lose an understanding of the things that are actually intrinsically yeah. valuable and important yeah, to so us. Yes, we've discussed this. Like, everybody is about gold, gold being the standard. Well, at the end of the day, you really can't use gold to survive it yeah you need food you need labor metals i mean sure silver you can use to make things with even gold to a certain degree but just the fact that people place so much value on metal yeah uh the fact that gold was used globally as the currency i have questions about which we're not going to talk about on this show they all claim that that's because well gold is just so easy to divide and it it, you know it doesn't it doesn't uh rot or rust or you know do any of that it's a it's just the perfect money and that's why all over the world everyone decided that gold was the best money to use and that's why you see it across the the world wherever you look you see gold being exchanged but i think there's other questions to be had about why that was the thing picked um but you had you had talked about value intrinsic value so let's talk about that uh, intrinsic is pertaining to the essential nature of a thing, inherent as it is. Value, worth, and usefulness or importance to the possessor. 
utility or merit. Now the value, that is where it is in the eye of the beholder. Mm -hmm. Someone can place value on something that somebody else finds absolutely meaningless. So that's the kind of relative uh, in the eye of the beholder part. But when I say intrinsic value, I'm saying something being useful or important to its possessor by its very nature. And I view that as, as you said, food, water, shelter, things that will keep you alive. Because I was just talking to Anuma, my cousin Anuma, about this. And I, we were talking about how when Armageddon inevitably happens and, and the, the system falls apart in whatever way it chooses to do, it would be... It's interesting because a lot of people hoard, like you were, people will hoard gold expecting that to be valuable when Armageddon comes. Mm -hmm. And when everything hits the fan and you and your family are trying to survive and trying to live and you're starting to get thirsty, you're starting to get hungry, you need shelter. When that happens, do you think someone's going to be able to come up to you and say, hey, I'll, uh, I'll give you gold for this? You're going to look at them and say, what am I going to do with this gold? Mm -hmm. What am I going to do with this metal? Now, with that definition of intrinsic value, I do see how you could argue that those metals do have intrinsic value. Like you can use gold in manufacturing. You can use gold in electronics. You can melt steel to make things. But that involves a lot of labor of converting <laughs> that into something useful. Whereas with things closer, that's where I view intrinsic as you don't have to do that much to make it useful to you. So even outside of food, water, and shelter, things that will still directly benefit your life that don't really require that much effort to make beneficial. Mm -hmm. you, you see what I'm saying there? I could also see, now that you're saying that, that I think that would also be why community is more... Maybe metal is more important in a community sense because when you're in a community, survival's kind of already established... Yeah, you have that. So then you can start looking at things like silver or iron to because then you have the processes to produce them and make them intrinsically valuable things. But if like you said, if it's post apocalyptic and everybody's just trying to eat, those things are going to mean nothing to you. Yeah. Even if you aren't already in that point of desperation, I mean, even if you're not thirsty, even if you're not hungry, I just I still I have a hard time unless you're a I would say you're a fool in that case. I mean, you you probably could find someone in that world to where it's like, yeah, give me these material, physical things you have right now that are benefiting you and I'll give you gold for it. And you might find someone that's like, oh, wow, ooh, gold. And I will do that exchange. Mm -hmm. But it's just like how when Armageddon comes, I'm sure people will be raiding the stores and grabbing the PS5s and grabbing all these material things just because they can. But they are not understanding how completely, utterly useless, they, useless are. they are in this current world. They're not even worth the weight of carrying them around. Mm -hmm. And Well, that's because people have lost the concept of what's truly valuable. Yeah, and that comes from, from your consciousness, your awareness and awakeness to the world around you and being aware of, of what is valuable. So intrinsic value, we'll talk about that. I'm sure it'll be brought up many times throughout the show. So I, it was good to get that definition out of the way. Money, a medium of exchange. So now let's talk about. There's four forms of quote unquote money. Yeah. Uh, the first is commodity money. 
which is intrinsically valuable things used as money. And those are things like animals, food, pretty much the barter and trade what system. you would barter yeah. the what you would barter would be a, a a commodity in itself it has value mm-hmm. in itself and that's what you're exchanging and then we had receipt money as the next one which is which we'll go into when it comes to the history of money receipt money is when you have something of value and then a it's usually a piece of paper is written to state I don't know if you want to go into the goldsmiths, the perfect well, example. We'll get into it, yeah. but the receipt money, it is a receipt for a commodity. commodity which is usually metal. Yeah, it, it's normal. usually a, a gold or silver. Is it? What else is there? Would it just be gold, silver? I, those are usually the they two. They used I to use heard. iron. There iron. was a time when they used iron. Yeah, I but think those the, are the, the Spartans two. used iron. Yeah. That's what I had read. And then there's fiat money, which is money that is paper, usually paper, that is created that has no value behind it. So the only value is it is the value you put on it. If yep. you believe it has value, then it has value, which is kind of what the Federal Reserve note is today. It's fiat money. It's just created, printed on paper, and we're told that this has value and that you can buy things with it. Yeah, not only do you, are you believing it has value, but you have an authority saying you must use this currency or we will throw you in a cage or harm you. Mm-hmm. So there is the authority backing it. Which, from what I've read, every time there has been a fiat money, it involves an authority saying, this is our legal tender. Yes. This is what you must use. Yes. Well, because governments create the fiat money. Yeah. That's what. And then there's, of course, the fractional credit money, checkbook money. And this is what our Federal Reserve System is based on. And we'll go into great detail about it. But it is essentially... Money that is created by loans granted by the banks, loans or bonds, and that's all. And that is today what a majority of our money is. It's a fractional fiat currency. Yep, because fractional money is where a fraction of the receipt in your hand is backed by whatever your commodity, typically gold. Um, so that's why uh, we'll talk about the book, The Creature from Jekyll Island, quite frequently Uh Edward Griffin, he describes fractional money, at least how it started with this receipt money has a fraction of its value in gold. That is an inevitable transition into fiat money, which has no gold backing. And now we're in a system where we use fiat money that has no backing and then have a fractional reserve system using fiat money. There is a slight difference, though, because fractional money isn't necessarily fiat money because it doesn't have to be on paper. A lot of our, most of our fractional money is just digital. Just checkbook, checkbook just, just in the just computer. In the computer. Oh, and blop, there's $10,000 yeah. in your bank account. So yeah. it's, it's not necessarily on paper. But but it is the continual, like even if you are a gold boy and, and you're worried about how much gold is backing your, your receipt dollar, it's the continual uh, degradation of that into a lesser and lesser amount until eventually there's nothing there. Mm-hmm. And it's just... It it's backed by nothing, so those are uh, the four, yeah, the four main types of money, and again, you know, the this is uh, what's commonly used, but money is something that can be, it can be anything. It's whatever you place your value in. It's a con. Money is a a construct of the mind of man, so it's really just wherever man places his mm-hmm. value in it, and. 
we were just talking about it, so let, let's get into it. Let's talk about the, the Goldsmith story. Yes, <laughs> we had some conflicts when we were discussing this because Jacob was convinced that the history I was giving him wasn't the real history, which, in truth, all history is written by the winners. So it it is what it is. It's, this is what we've been told. This is when you do any research, this is what normally comes up. It's not even that I don't like completely disagree that this could have been how the banking system evolved. I just don't like the. I don't, it's always like, oh, this innocent goldsmith who was just looking for profits. Like there, there was no other motive. There was no other part of control. There was no involvement by oh, government. I'm sure there was, <laughs> but that's the part of it I don't like. Is that it's, oh, you know, the this it's this, so clean cut. Yeah, this this, is, this, uh, yeah. this business owner, capitalist type, just trying to make his money, just trying to make profits. He he. He evolved the system into this. So. Well, unfortunately, history is one of those things where you have to base on what people have written and researched. It's not always going it, to, it's almost never truly accurate because you weren't there. You didn't experience yeah. it, but it is what it is. Um. So, and actually the history of money is not very easy to come by because you get some, a lot of conflicting be origins. Um. So I'm just going to do a very general brief overview and it pretty much started in the Bronze Age um, with metal coins because that was when trade really kind of started. And it was easier between craft, craftsmen and merchants to exchange using coin because coin, as you said before, doesn't spoil. It can be divided into smaller units. And because metal is scarce in itself, it creates value in the coin. Yeah. Did I explain that right? Well, because uh, the way I also, there was kind of a subtle change to where they were exchanging metals in themselves, like a metal coin literally just being a small amount of gold or silver or bronze or whatever. And eventually that led into the same idea, except now the coin has a stamp of whatever government behind yeah, it issued, yes so there i mean there it's kind of the same thing but it, well, you know, at the it beginning started with, when there weren't government like government during the bronze age government control was not an issue like it is today and so it was just easier to because that's when travel and trade from long distances began so if you are in india and you want to trade with somebody in china if you're trading cows instead of, well, cows is a bad example, chickens, whatever, um, it's easier to carry money with you than to carry a whole bunch of grain with you to yeah. make the exchange. So it was just a convenience thing. I'm having a hard time today. <laughs> and then the real first time that people really started using coin on a very regular basis was in ancient Greece. But that was really all I could find about that. And it really wasn't until ancient Rome when they, well, the one documentary I watched, um, Money Masters, he used the term uh, money changers, which I think is a really good term because they weren't really bankers yet, but they still controlled the currency, the money exchange. And when ancient Rome first started, people were making money all over and exchanging it for goods, and it was causing really high inflation and taxation among the citizens. 
So it wasn't until 48 BC when Caesar actually went and became emperor, well, when he came into power, he actually took control of the money supply. And that was really the first time, a, as far as I could tell, a government had actually started minting their own coins. Okay. And then um, the economy actually was working. It Everything kind of leveled out. People were living prosperously because everybody had money. It wasn't being taxed. It wasn't a debt-based. It was just currency that was being issued for the purpose of trade. And But then Caesar was assassinated, which there's all kinds of theories. That's why he was assassinated, because the money changers don't like people controlling the money because then they can't make money off of it. And then after that, Rome just kind of spiraled out of control. It was high taxation and speculation and a whole bunch of dishonest money money practices. And so the money supply decreased because that's what happens with high inflation. Your buying power decreases. And well, the money in the money supply increases, which makes, makes it worthless. Makes it worthless is what and I meant, sorry. people stop using the currency because it's worthless. Yeah, and that's what happened. And according to this, this was one of the reasons why Rome fell. There are billions of reasons why Rome fell, but this was one of them. Um, but it was pretty much out of the fall of Rome when the goldsmiths kind of came into the scene because goldsmiths would create coin. And eventually, if somebody didn't want to carry around all this coin, they would go to the goldsmith. The goldsmith would write them a receipt, which is receipt money, say, you know, I've got 10 coins, but I don't want to carry my 10 coins around. He'd write a receipt, said 10 coins on it. And then they would carry that around, and they could use that in trade. And you'd pay him to do that. You'd, you'd pay him to store your you gold. You could pay him to store it. And then that, because people would know that that piece of paper was backed by 10 gold coins, you know, if they wanted to buy a cow with it, they'd say, oh, okay, I'll take this piece of paper because I know it's worth 10 coins and blah, blah, blah. But then uh, what happened was people... At some point, the goldsmith realized that all this gold was just sitting in storage, not doing anything. And he said, well, then I'll loan out some of this money. And that's where fractional reserve comes in. Because that money wasn't not being used. Yes. That money sitting there was being used. It was. It had value. By the receipts. Mm -hmm. So as it was being exchanged externally using the receipts, he then decides, oh, out of this gold pile that I have in here, I'm going to loan out. Ten percent of what I have, and in that's here. where the fraction comes in because now you have that receipt that he just lent out is only, you know, whatever the fraction. It's now only half backed by gold. Mm -hmm. He only has half the amount of gold to give out to everybody if everyone came and tried to claim their gold. But the trick behind it was then he charges interest on the money he's loaning, so that's free money he's making because it's not even his money, money he's that out. he's making money off of. And um, the only real issue with this whole money exchange with the goldsmiths is that, ironically enough, the Catholic Church was very anti-usury. For those of you who don't know what usury is, it's loaning money with interest. That's yeah. the term. A lot of people say nowadays it's high interest, but it's any money that you yeah. loan and you charge interest. Griffin says now is usury. it's uh, usury is anything involving fiat money because fiat money is made out of nothing. So to charge to charge interest on something that you created out of nothing, it's usury. It's usury. So 
Um, so for a long time, that was a big issue. And then it was actually uh, because after Rome, Italy turned into the the medieval states. And the first real bank that was kind of created was the Bank of Venice. And actually, when that was created, it was the first bank that was created where they could not make loans or profits yeah, off uh, of their deposits. I read about it was, uh, well, there was one called the the Banco della Piazza del yes. Rialto. That was, I believe, that was another one. There were a couple. A couple of the banks did do the loan, the fractional reserve, and because... They failed. They so failed. So then they were like, well, we'll make a bank that doesn't do that. And then eventually the government's like, well, we need money right now for whatever we're doing, a war we're trying to do or whatever. So now we'll have to make a new bank that can loan and create money mm-hmm. and, and do all of that. So... Which no. would be, I just wanted to put it here, like that would, so if you were to say what is an ideal bank, it's one that doesn't loan any money out mm-hmm. or create any money. It just stores your money. You pay them to store the money. They mm-hmm. make money solely off of storing your money, exchanging currencies, notary services, like the these basic functions, which clearly, uh, as it sounds, that's not like an extremely profitable business. I'm sure you could make money and be sustainable doing it, but you're not going to become the high rolling banker that we know today by mm-hmm. doing that, by not lending out money. Because that's how banks make their money is through like the goldsmith uh, lending out and making mo- interest on the on those loans. That is the, the profit. And then it, there were, uh, I guess, a couple of banks in the interim between we get to the Bank of England, because the Bank of England is a is a big one because that was the first time it was chartered in 19 or 1694. And, uh, I got conflicting reasons why it was chartered, but I think the basic reason would be the money changers weren't happy because at that time, uh, England was actually using tally sticks. That's where the tally sticks came yeah. in. And apparently that was a very successful economy, but you don't make any money off of tally sticks. And so they – and the other thing with England is England seems to always be at war. They've been in a lot of wars even before the Bank of England and then after Bank of England. So at some point, the government needed money to finance these wars. So the money changers, you know, said, okay, hey, let can we charter this bank and then we will give you – we will grant you the funds for war. And so it – in 19 or 1694 the bank of england was created and then by 9 or 1707 the bank was given the responsibility to manage the english money supply with receipt money but then when the government needed money for war that is when the fractional reserve part kicked in yeah, yeah, and it's a classic foot in the door type thing. Like I heard it, it had started with something like a two to one ratio, mm-hmm. and then, but then the ratio can just become whatever you require it to be. And we'll talk about, but that is with these central banks, one of the key uh, purposes of them in the in the symbiotic relationship with government is like the British Empire. You need cash to fund your war machine. You're all over the globe. Yeah, and it was actually after they created the Bank of England when all the like the West Indies. All company really and all those because the Bank of England was loaning those monies because how do you make money? You loan it and then you create more money into the supply. So the Bank of England is the first true central bank. Yeah, that's what uh, I heard Griffin describe it as, which 
was a little confusing to me because it sounds like there were some other ones. There were like government chartered banks, like you were saying, of Venice. Of, of Hamburg, earlier. I believe, had one. The Bank of yeah. Hamburg, yeah. But so I, I don't think I think they didn't make loans. I, they the weren't. Difference? Yeah, I don't think any of them used the fractional reserve system. I think the or Bank is of it also was... the ownership where those were government owned? Whereas that was because was the Bank of England. Yes, a... the Bank of England is a privately owned privately corporation. Owned. Yes. So it's the partnership between government and the private bankers. Mm-hmm. So that that makes sense. I did forget that part. And then and that's where taxpayers were used to secure the that's how that whole system started. Taxpayers are used to secure the debt because they are a, collateral. They're the collateral. They can guarantee the loan. Yeah. All right, so we'll we'll continue to dive into all cuz the federal reserve is is like a modern extension of, of that of that of format. Yes. So we'll we'll continue to dive into that. Let's wrap up the cuz that all devolt uh came out of the goldsmith. Um I just I didn't know if you wanted to finish that story or if you were ready to move on. I mean I, that was kind of the no, where I, that story goes. <laughs> um um yes. Because then we pretty much can get into the whole history of the why we have the Federal Reserve, which was, starts with the American Revolution. Uh, a lot of people think, you know, taxation without representation or we just wanted to break away from England yeah, and tea tax. tea tax and all that lovely stuff. But from the research I've done, it seems like... The the reason why the colonists really wanted to break away from England was because at this point, England had been, after the creation of the Bank of England, England had been in four major wars. So they were really struggling to pay off their debt to the Bank of England. And so they wanted to tax the colonists. And the colonists were like, wait a minute, you know, we don't want to pay for your wars. And the other thing is in the United States at that point, there was a real shortage in coin. There wasn't, they, that was before the gold rush. They hadn't discovered silver in the United States yet. So that that was a real scarcity. So they were unable to, they, to pay the British government in coin. So the colonists actually created their own script called colonial script. And from my understanding, it actually did very well because it was to- it was fiat currency. It was produced by each of the colonies. But the difference was it was solely produced to make trade possible. Like money was issued for the sole purpose of trade. It wasn't making money off of money. Not, it, yes, it, it, it was, was a medium of exchange. exchange for trade. And it was doing very well. And the. Bank of England said, hey, wait, you can't do that because we're not making any money and we're not getting our payment from you. So in 1764, England passed the Currency Act, which outlawed the colonial script and forced the colonists to pay in silver and gold, which created a huge depression in the colonies because they didn't have the silver or gold to pay. They were pretty upset about that. And so that's kind of how the revolution evolved and you have the quote from Benjamin Franklin, correct? I, I don't have it on me, but yeah, uh, there's a Benjamin Franklin quote that the primary reason for the revolutionary, revolutionary war yes. was through the banking system, was wanting to escape, uh, like you said, being forced to front the bill for the British Empire to pay the Bank of England. Yes. So, but then what happened was because the colonies were going to war with England, 
they just started printing money to support the war cause, which meant a lot of money was printed and it lost, it devalued. Yeah, not worth the colonial. It, yes, as George Washington's famous saying something about a wagon full of money can't pay for a wagon full of shoes or something. I Which I'm sure is, I, I didn't write any of this. I don't really care about the Constitution like that, but we'll talk about how the, the the Federal Reserve is unconstitutional. And part of one of the things in the in the Constitution is saying directly, you can only use gold or silver coin. Mm-hmm. And they and all the documentaries were saying that was a result. Of, like they had literally just you know, like you said, they just inflated a currency to the point of it being completely worthless. Yep. So they understood how you can do that, how you can just make how you can overprint and make it worthless. And then it then it's not serving its purpose as a medium of exchange. So that's part of why in the Constitution it says. Well, the other reason why is in uh, before the Constitution was written in 1781 is when they created the Bank of North America. The First Continental Congress created it. And they had appointed Robert Morris, and he was a very wealthy businessman. And that was the first fractional reserve bank in the United States, well, in the colonies, the United States. Okay. Um, it was modeled after the Bank of England. And I, I find this very interesting, is that all these central banks are privately owned. So they, how do I want to say this? Each one has... Well, I don't know if it was this bank, but it was definitely the first bank of the United States where 80 percent of the stock in the bank is owned by private owners. And the other 20 percent is given by the government by the sale of bonds, which the government sells these bonds to the bank. And then the bank takes these bonds and then they use that capital to make loans and then the private owners actually take the loans out from this money given by the government to pay for their stock. So they're never actually investing money into these banks. Okay. They're using what the government is giving and then take making loans to themselves out of the capital from the government. I find that very interesting. Yeah, that's extremely convoluted and but again, a lot of this will make no sense cuz it's it's meant to make no it's, sense. Yeah. But then because of the fractional reserve money, inflation was still super high in the colonies, or by now it was the United States. Um, So after four years, they ended the bank. They said, this isn't working. We're not going to use this because it's causing all kinds of depression. But then the Constitution was written. And then in 1789. So then the first bank of the United States was created in 1791. And the primary person behind that was Alexander Hamilton, who is a fascinating character. If you ever really get to take any time to put research into him. Yeah, I don't know much about him. Um, He was the secretary of treasure under Washington. He was an agent of the Rothschilds. Um, Coincidence. Yeah, yeah, coincidence. How crazy Which with the Rothschilds is its own thing. And his mentor was Robert Morris, who was involved with the First Bank. So the, the... First Bank of the United States was just a replica of the Bank of North America. They had the monopoly to print the national currency. That was, I know for sure that this was the one that was 80% was privately owned and then the 20%, what I had just mentioned. And of course, this caused all kinds of inflation, devalued money. People were very unhappy. So by... 1811, they, I, 
I don't know if the charter ran out, if there was an actual charter or if they just decided to end it, but it was ended. But the Bank of England was not very happy about that. Because as I said, Hamilton was an agent of the Rothschilds and the Rothschilds had a lot of influence into the Bank of England. And they were not happy that the or the United States was ending their central bank experiment. And they actually threatened to go to war with America over this. And they did with the War of 1812. A lot of people don't know that, but that's how that happened. The only reason why the War of 1812 we won was because England was also at war with France at the time. And they just couldn't, you know, they have overextended themselves militarily. But so then, this was uh, this was the first. Of the United States because it was after the Constitution. Yeah, it was after the Constitution. But it's technically the second. The second on, time on in our time. Yeah. yeah. And then I'm not exactly sure why, but in 1816, they created the second bank of the United States, which was the same as the last prior two banks. 18, so it didn't take many years it did not to take retry many years, that no. one. <laughs> and uh, so I'm not going to go into too much because it was the same exact thing as the other two banks. But Andrew Jackson who was a very anti-banker president, notorious yeah. for that. He ended the, when the charter was up, he ended it. He did not sign it and it ended. And then the Civil War happened, which a lot of, there's a lot of reasons for the Civil War. It's a very complicated war. I know a lot of people think it was over slavery, but slavery was like <laughs> very low on the list. But the by the time... The bank had ended, the second bank of the United States. There was a lot of interest in the or in the United States. England supported the southern states. France supported the northern states. And the north started raising tariffs so that the south couldn't trade with England anymore. They would have to trade with the north, which was more expensive. So the south wasn't happy about that. I'm going off track because it really has nothing to do with this. But um, that 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 was the real reason why South Carolina succeeded, because they just were tired of the North dictating their economic policies, which, yes, you could put slavery in that because slavery was a huge part of the economy of the South. But the Civil War wasn't about slavery. It so, was so just as we'll talk about how the it seems like those northeastern bankers since forever of the Amer of the Americas have been that controlling. Well, sure, because they were the, the North was very industrial by then. And so they had a lot of their money invested into the industries in the North, you know, the railroads, steel. Well, I don't know if steel isn't yet, but a lot of those industries. Um, well, no, steel was started. Try to think when Carnegie came over. Um, but so anyways, the South succeeded. Lincoln tried to keep, who is another controversial president keep to me. Keep the union together. <laughs> yeah, keep the union together. But he created what was called greenbacks, which I didn't know a lot about because nobody I, ever really I talks about it. Really yeah. heard of it, no. Uh, and it was a fiat currency, and it was used to fund the war, which I find interesting because the one documentary I was watching, Money Masters, he was saying they were very successful. But I don't understand how a fiat currency can be successful during wartime because you're just producing money and there's no real value behind well, it. Well, unless you're it's just successful in supporting the, the war machine because like, yeah. you need the money. And maybe that's also where – because 
when you when you're spending it right away, you know, there's that time lapse of where it hasn't yet come back as that infl- you know, it hasn't come back and hit the people yet and you're spending so much of it so quickly through the war process. Know, that could right. be yeah, that's a good reason. I just Well, and also it didn't I mean, how long how long was it in Place. Well, that's the thing. The greenback started, I think, when he first became president. It was 1862 he did that to fund the war because the Civil War started right when Lincoln became inaugurated. But then in 19, or 1863, Lincoln signed the National Bank Act, which did the total opposite. It created a few national banks in the region and they created money with the fractional reserve system. So maybe that's why the greenbacks were more successful because they weren't they were just fiat money. They weren't fractionally reserved. Yeah, the the National Bank Act of uh, 1863. Yeah, because before that, there were like you could be a bank and make a bank currency. Like you, there were other currencies that you could make, and that's where they nationalized it to say no, you're not. A, nobody else is allowed mm-hmm. to make a currency in in the country. So they had the monopoly to produce notes, buying U.S. bonds. I think that's when they actually started using U.S. bonds, maybe the Currency Act. Okay. I'm not sure on that, though. Um, But then, you know, the North won. Yay, we beat the South. And then after the Civil War, there were three major depressions between the ending of the Civil War and the creation of the Federal Reserve. And I find it – I think it's funny because – I've heard so many theories about Abraham Lincoln's assassination. To me, it's a lot like JFK. It's like everybody wanted him dead. So it's <laughs> pick your whoever you know you choose. Because the one documentary I was read was convinced that he was killed because of the greenbacks. But he had created the National Currency Act, so that doesn't make any sense to me. Apparently, he wanted to end it. I don't know. But then, because of these three major depressions, all of which were created by the banks. I think a lot of people don't understand that, that when you start the federal, the fractional reserve system is that then the banks have the total control over contracting and expanding the money supply. Yeah. And so they are the ones who create the depressions. It's a recession and depression does not just happen. happen. It's not a naturally occurring thing. The central banks control when they expand, when they contract, their and when they reap all the physical assets back from you that you created during the boom cycle, mm-hmm. it, it's a reaping cycle. So, and I think a lot of people don't understand that. So, after the Civil War, the banks created three major depressions. And that was when I think it was during Teddy Roosevelt's, yeah, it was Teddy Roosevelt. He started a commission which involved Nelson Aldrich, which was a senator from Rhode Island, who was one of the instrumental people in creating the Federal Reserve Act. And part of what the the Fed Federal Reserve was was coming out of what you just said they yeah, created. The three, yeah. They created these issues. They created these bank runs, these bank failures, and sold it to the public of well, we need we need reform. We need reform <laughs> to control the system to make sure that these these bank runs don't happen and bank collapses don't happen and bring stability and bring reserve and bring and uh and bring power and uh smoothness to the money system which <laughs> the federal reserve did anything but that but so they created the issues that were then used as the justification for creating a, a central bank system mm-hmm. and then of course the historic 
notorious meeting on Jekyll Island in Georgia in 1910. Um, I listed who was. There were seven people who attended. I did write them down. There he is. Nelson Aldridge, who was a very, very, very wealthy businessman. He was a Republican senator from Rhode Island. Yeah, he was a tobacco guy, I think. Yeah, he was. I, I'm not sure. Where it was, was it tobacco? It might have been. He he was already known for using the government to privately enrich himself through his businesses. And he was the guy put in charge of creating the monetary, monetary reform. <laughs> and then uh, Abraham Pratt Andrew, who was an assistant secretary of the U.S. Treasury. Uh, Frank Vanderlip. Harry, Henry Davison, Charles Norton, Benjamin Strong, and then Paul Warburg, who a lot of people don't know about. He's a very interesting character. He actually was the ins- he wrote the Federal it was Reserve. His, I, it yeah. was his idea, and he's uh, I mean, I don't think a lot of the his banking family, the Warburgs, yeah, well, that's I, Germany and, and he the immigrated from Germany yeah. like nine years prior to the creation of yeah. the Federal Reserve. Yeah, he comes from a very powerful banking family in Germany. His brother Max was a financial advisor to the Kaiser and then eventually became director of the Reichsbank. And he was a Rothschild agent because he worked through Kuhn Loeb and Company Banking House, which was uh, the American instrument of the Rothschild Empire. And so and he, I find it interesting most people don't know even who know who he is. And he yeah. is responsible for the whole system that we are in today. For banking, so, and then I have a couple reasons why they wanted to create the Federal Reserve. You can elaborate if you want. Um, the one I, the ones I have are they wanted to set it up as a cartel to reduce competition among the banks and increase profit by centralizing the control of our nation's money supply in the hands of a few. Because at this point, there was rapid expansion happening. The the West and the South were rapidly expanding. New banks were popping up all over the place. Mm -hmm. Those banks themselves were becoming rich. They were were becoming powerful. They were becoming threats to the cartels. And And I think what a lot of people don't know, at that time, a lot of the financial power was held in New York City. And those bankers didn't want to lose that control because that's where all the financing or finance was occurring was New York City. Um, It also was used to misdirect banking reform by scamming the public and believing it would stop depressions, as you had stated prior. Um, it It would prevent any kind of fiat currency from making a comeback. For example, the greenback or colonial script. Or yeah, anything. they wanted to be the only ones with the authority to create and print the money. And through creating the Federal Reserve, they wanted to have complete control over all banks in the country through their quote unquote reserves, which means all banks that operate in the country are receiving their central bank deposits from this cartel mm-hmm. of bankers you know, from the Northeast. And because of that, then they had the right to create 90 percent of the money supply. So they had complete monopoly over the money supply. Uh, An interesting point I also heard was this was also a time of wealth with that expansion to where the banks were becoming worried because people were using the banks less and less, Mm -hmm. not only the individuals, but the corporations. Corporations. I mean, if you're a corporation and you are profitable and you are making a lot of money, the corporations were saying, well, why am I going to go get a bank loan when I can just reinvest my profits? And there were some big, at that time, that was when oil, the railroads, steel, those were all, so there were some big ones. And I mean, if, if you're a banker, and you don't have people coming to you to take a loan out, you that is your business being lost. Mm-hmm. So this was about bringing 
everyone back to the banks to take out debt, to take out loans. And this is why today, even if you are a corporation making billions of dollars in profits, you're still going to see them taking out massive bank loans. Why is that? It's because the banks need them to work with them. The banks need that that income stream of interest from these massive loans. And the banks want these massive corporate loans. They prefer that, which we'll talk about when we get to bailouts. The, the banks would much rather have these large, uh, singular, massive loans to corporations that they're making a massive amount of interest on rather than loaning you or I, you know, the individual, their small $10,000 loan. They're not nearly as interested in that. Mm-hmm. And then the last one I had was to establish a central bank with a high degree of independence from effective political control, which I think is a big thing. A lot of people don't understand that the Federal Reserve is not a government agency. It is a private corporation. The government, the only aspect to of quote unquote control the government has is electing, I think it's two members to the board of governors. I, I yeah, and how it. many are how many are on it? it it's not. It's, it's not enough yeah, they're in. They already know who they are going to. The bankers are telling the government who they're going to promote. It's not like the government independently. Yeah, these it's people. privately owned by private stockholders for private profits, and they're making private profits. And so in nineteen or yeah, nineteen thirteen. Um, oh, I also wanted to mention because we had talked about this: the Federal Income Tax Act of yeah. 1913. And you, you are right. Today in our society, the Federal Income Tax means nothing. We don't need to pay a federal income tax. Our money does not go in. What you pay into the income tax does not go to pay pave your roads or the judicial system or that line of crap that they're always telling people that it's funding programs. The government pay or the government pays the how does that work? The government puts a bond out. Yes, that's it. Thank you. Anybody who doesn't buy the bond, which there's never going to be enough people looking to buy a bond for the amount of money the government's looking to spend. So the Federal Reserve buys the bond to buy the bond. The Federal Reserve literally creates the money out of nothing. The government then takes that money and spends it on whatever they're going to spend it on. Mm-hmm. When the next time you see in the news, like, oh, the government just spent two billion dollars on this bill, that two billion dollars wasn't taken out of your tax money. It was taken. It was created by the Federal Reserve, loaned to the government, which increased its debt. And now the government has, you know, the, the when they create that money, even though they created out of nothing on the spot, the Federal Reserve also puts on what they call interest but it's more of like a fee of doing business of we're mm-hmm. creating the money for you so but at the time when they created the act it was important because the federal reserve banks needed similar to the bank of england a guarantee for their loans which would be the taxpayer money and the federal income tax made that possible by the federal government tax, because prior to that, it was just state taxes that you paid. Now the federal government made everybody pay. It wasn't based on the states. And the reason why they wanted that is because they thought the states would rebel having to pay these taxes. Yeah. And even though the taxes aren't needed, it's still important to have them because one, you're I mean, this whole thing only works through concealing and bamboozling the public. Mm -hmm. So you want the everyday man to think that, oh, well, I'm paying taxes. So that's how the government spends money. Uh, So if you were if you removed all taxes, all of a sudden people would be like, well, 
you know, so where's the government getting money to spend? Yeah. Like, how's that working? What's that system in place? Um, oh, I was just losing my train of thought. What were we just thought we were? Why income tax is no longer important. Yeah, it's the it's the concealment. Uh, I also think it's just another part of control. Control and it's control through requiring you to operate in this fiat currency that they're dictating. So like at the government is only going to accept federal income tax or like any state tax through Federal Reserve notes. So even if you were someone who was able to live without Federal Reserve notes in your life at all, at some point you <laughs> you're going to your you're going to have to pay your taxes or the government's going to come kill you or put you in a cage. So I think that's just the other it's just another uh thing confirming that you must use this currency. You have to play in our game, in our system of this fiat tender that we are putting out the legal tender laws saying that you must use. Mm -hmm. And so, and then in 1913, Woodrow Wilson signed the Federal Reserve Act. It went into power, went into, I can't speak today. It became an, an official act and I don't doesn't he like also a, have a quote saying he later on he, <laughs> he regretted like, do I like what the hell did I just do? I don't know, I'm sorry weird. Woodrow Wilson quote. is one of my, okay I'm not a fan of any of the presidents but like if I had to put them in a list Woodrow Wilson would be right down at the bottom he was just a piece of work okay and we should also talk about the Federal Reserve itself it is seven private banks that are set up through the United States. However, the one in New York State or New York City is the the main it they run everything through New York City. Um it, which is all... the illusion it was sold. Well we have seven banks. Oh yeah, it's, it's, it's not it's centralized. Not a, it's not a centralized <laughs> bank controlling all the banks in the country. No, 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 no. And the funny thing is is that um a lot of was it one third of the stockholders are actually foreign investors. Yeah, they're not. It, it's like seven. It, or I think it's more. It's like seventy percent. It because most of this goes back to those. And uh, the funny the thing is, and yep, these, these families I find very interesting about the central banks is they all have private stockholders, but nobody. There's no list of who the actual stockholders are. You can't look up who started yeah. the initial investments to any of these. I banks. had heard this as well, and I because I, uh, I think you can look at what bank, what member banks own the Federal Reserve. But then the problem is, is that the member banks themselves, you can't look at. It's confidential who owns who the, the member banks, yep. which the member banks are who make up and own the the central bank, the Federal Reserve mm -hmm. Bank, which. Is that because I think are each of the Federal Reserve banks owned separately? So each of the seven banks yeah, have different. Yeah, there's seven independent They have different owners, yep. different private corporations. Mm -hmm. But they all answer to New York City or the one in New York is the main central. And then that's, uh, again, another one of the main reasons behind making a system like this is you know, this whole idea of fractional reserve banking is inherently risky. And the higher your ratios go, the more money you make, but the more of a chance that just on one given day of a lot of checks being put out of your uh, deposits or, or like any little fluctuation fluctuation can put you in a negative and put you in a in a collect and put you into a like your your uh, what's the term for that where you're you're 
you're not profitable. Your books are negative. You're 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 in the you're, you're in insolvent. The, you're insolvent. Thank you. Um, and so part of the Federal Reserve was unifying that level of ratio. Mm-hmm. So it's saying, well, we can't now blame the bankers for being crazy and irresponsible and and lending out and creating all this money and 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 uh, having them causing themselves to fail. That's not the bankers' fault. Now what we're going to do is all unilaterally step as close to the edge as we can get, so that if anything bad happens, either. The whole system collapses, in which case you can go to the government and justify bailouts. Or at the very least, if one bank collapses, you say, well, that bank's doing what all the other banks are doing. So clearly it wasn't the bank's fault, even though we're all at this crazy risk uh, ratio of lending out and creating money uh, based upon what we actually have. Mm -hmm. So it was a way of I I like how Griffin and the creature from Jekyll Island described it as we're all going to step. Uh, the the same distance close to the ledge mm-hmm. and unify in that way and and to then take the onus off of these banks because that was part of you know the the propaganda around the Federal Reserve was people understood that that bankers were doing crazy crap like this and they were failing they were running into issues so that was part of the justification for creating the Federal Reserve system which didn't remove any of that it just caused it protected them yeah it made it so. You know, back then, a bank could be more conservative in terms of what they're lending out to the ratio of what they have on deposit, whereas now it's just made it worse because now they're all operating under the same. Yes, because prior to that, if a bank failed, a bank failed and you just didn't use that bank anymore. But now you use any bank and they're all risky. So you really have no option to select a good bank because they are all protected under the Federal Reserve. Because they're all going under the Federal Reserve, which I wrote down the uh, the pyramid structure, because this is a pyramid scheme. It's a Ponzi scheme, which yes, it is. as we describe it, you'll understand why. Um, not only is it a, a pyramid or Ponzi scheme in terms of ownership, where there's fewer at the top, but also in the way the money flows, which, you know, obviously it's kind of the same thing. But as you were talking about, it starts with that board of governors at the top. And then through that, they kind of control the whole uh, federal open market committee, which is where they, that's where the, I think they, they choose what debts they're going to buy because they don't buy just debts from our government. They also buy debts from foreign governments. And I think that was the monetary control act of 1980, which basically meant the fed could do the same thing it does for our government, but for foreign governments, which <laughs> when you read the book, like the creature from Jekyll Island, you really realize how almost all government actions, especially in the foreign circuit, are almost entirely based around making sure our private banks get their loans paid. Mm-hmm. So the Federal Reserve and the Monetary Act existed so that the Federal Reserve could buy a foreign government's useless bond, create and print money for them. So then that foreign government can turn around and pay the loans and interest to our private banks. And they can't fail if they fail. That money, so the money disappears. So, what does the government or the Federal Reserve do? Loan them more money to pay their interest off of the loans and they we'll can't. We'll talk pay. about that. The roll, yeah, the, the loan uh, cycle. Um, so, you have the board of governors at the top. Um, you know, the elect few that control what's going on, and then you have the federal, the the seven Federal Reserve banks below them. The board of governors controls all seven of the the Federal Reserve banks. So, they're really not separate, even though they're technically separate private entities. And then 
of uh, below those Federal Reserve banks, you have the member banks, the private banks that are receiving their money from the Federal Reserve banks, as well as the other depository institutions. And then below that, at the bottom of the at the bottom of the pole and in greatest number, you have the American people. So that's a pyramid shape where you have very few in the Board of Governors. Then you have your seven Federal Reserve banks. And then below those seven Federal Reserve banks, you have all the other banks and, and institutions that deal with money. And then below that, you have the people. So that's the pyramid shape. That's the Ponzi scheme of how it's set up. Um, well, you, maybe you should talk about the Mandrake mechanism. Yeah. Uh, because we're talking a lot about the Federal Reserve and creating fractional money out of nothing. But how do they do it? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, I uh, I really liked the what was the documentary? Uh, money is debt. Yeah, money. Is that debt. was a good one for if you want to know how. Well, we've already explained how it works. We're about to get kind of convoluted in the ways they do it. But uh, if you understand that the Federal Reserve buys a bond from the government, the way they buy that bond is then creating the money out of nothing giving it to the government so they can spend it. And then what they do is they place the value on that bond as the money they created to give to the government. So if they buy a bond from the government for a million dollars, they now say, well, that million dollar, uh, that bond we have uh, that we own is worth a million dollars. And now we can create, a, we'll use the nine, I keep hearing the ratio of nine to nine one. To so one. now yeah. we can make $9 million. And then that $9 million is sent down through the discount window, through the loan window to the Federal Reserve Banks and the in the private banks uh, where it expands. So in the money, I basically have the money is debt example written down here. So let me kind of stumble through this because it it's quite interesting. So he used the example of, you know, if you start a new bank, you're starting from scratch, okay? And that new bank is going to get a loan from the central bank from the Federal Reserve. And that loan would be $1,111.12, which this is called high-powered money. I think there's another term for it too, but basically the money that the fiat money that they get loaned from the central bank, which allows them or justifies to them or, you know, because again, all these ratios are completely arbitrary, but they basically say, well, out of this $1,000 or technically $1,111, we can multiply that by nine. And now we can make up to a $10,000 loan. So that's exactly what happens when the first loan customer comes in and he says, well, I need a $10,000 loan to buy a car, which I guess here we should also state that is when money is created. Mm -hmm. Money is created because we're saying money is debt but that also kind of implies that it existed before. Uh, it The actual way of saying it is money is created the instant it is borrowed. So as soon as you borrow it, the credit card debt, bank loans, anything involving that. People haven't really talked about it, but I'm, assur I'm assuming mortgages work Similarly, in, yeah. in, the same, in mm -hmm. a similar way. It's just a, a different type of bank loan. Um, so anyways... Guy comes in, he says, yo, I need $10,000 for a loan so I can go buy a car. The bank says, cool, we don't have $10,000, but we can just print $10,000 and give it to you. And then uh, things get interesting when 
because this is now new money. This is created money, and it, it only right now exists in this guy's hands or in, you know, usually in just the magical numbers of the computer screen. So then he turns around and goes and buys the car and writes a check to the woman selling him the car and says, well, here's $10,000. I'm going to buy the car. And this is where it gets interesting because then that woman goes and deposits the $10,000 into a bank. And this is where this was where I had a hard time wrapping my head around it. But with this, with the deposits in the bank, they do the ratio in reverse. So whereas with the high powered central bank money, they use that as their justification to multiply it by nine. When you deposit that $10,000 into the bank, they divide it by the ratio mm-hmm. because you are which now I, I like saying it more is like the bank says, well, we're going to keep uh we're going to keep 10% of our deposits, which means we can loan out 90%. So with this $10,000 loan, that means the bank says, well, we have this excess reserve of $9,000 because... I have a quick question. He discusses different banks. I I got lost in this section too. Um, He discusses like if it's going to a different bank though... It's going to happen the way you're describing it, but they at some point have to give some of that back to the original bank. The way the way I was getting it, I was kind of hearing it presented is it really has no matter on if it's the same bank or a different bank. Because they're all owned by the Because this is a closed loop system. So it really doesn't matter if this money is turned around and put back into the same bank or in a different bank because they're all operating in the same closed looped Federal Reserve fiat control system. So even if this was deposited back into the exact same bank that the guy got his $10,000 from, it would be it would function the exact same way. Okay. The only difference is, is you're depositing that money into the bank and the bank saying, well, cool, we we only need to keep 10 percent of this on our books. So we have excess reserves so we can now turn around and create a nine thousand dollar loan based on this ten thousand dollars. So that's the second step. And that's just the uh, the difference of you're dividing it by the ratio um, rather than multiplying it. and this just keeps going. So now that $9,000 can be turned around and deposited into a different or same bank, but now the nine, you know, it can only be used for an $8,100 loan. And this just keeps going and going and going and going until I believe you can't technically get all the way to a hundred thousand, but you get pretty damn close. So out of an original $10,000 that by itself never existed either. That was just justified out of that original thousand uh, dollar federal uh, central bank deposit. Out of that thousand dollars was created ten thousand dollars. And then that ten thousand dollars has now created almost a hundred thousand dollars in the system. Mm-hmm. So there is this ability to make a massive amount of money out of nothing. Out of nothing. And, and if it doesn't make sense, it's because it's ridiculous. <laughs> it is. It, it's crazy. It's, it's crazy. Now, he also said the only kind of oddball part of this is if the money never returned to a bank. But let's be honest, who's doing that? Like very few people. Like even if you did save it and put it under your drawer for a couple of years, at some money starts in a bank and it's almost always going to return to a mm-hmm. bank. So regardless of what you're doing with it, and they, they can't guarantee that it's going to return to the bank, but 
who doesn't at some point put the money back into a bank, even if you were then using cat, you were saving it in cash, exchanged it for something. And then that person goes and put it in, puts it in a bank. It doesn't it, the, the circle of the travel does not matter at all. It doesn't matter how many hands it passed through is it's going to start in a bank and it's almost always going to inevitably end in a bank unless you're digging a hole in the ground, putting the money in it and never touching it. Well, until and very die. rarely is it in the form of cash. That too, yeah. So I mean, that's why they call it checkbook money for a reason, because it's just all in the air. <laughs> Which I want to emphasize, when you go and take a loan out of a bank, they literally type in yep. that amount into your bank account. Okay, do we understand that? There's no money going this in. This is what yes. you devote your life to. <laughs> this is your God, mm-hmm. which we kind of skipped over it. But I'm at the end, I'm going to wrap up with talking about the, oh, the, the money, money is religion. Yeah. Money is a religion and the kind of the occult things they want you to associate with money. But this naturally went into this and it's nice. It's good. We need to get this out of the way because that and then not only so and then with that, the bank is only creating the principle. Mm-hmm. And this is where we run into the problem of uh, I got I got a nice name for it. It's like perpetual debt. And what the perpetual debt is, is this this is what you would call the treadmill. It's what everyone refers to as like, you know, the money treadmill. Why am I I constantly on the grind? Well, that's because when the bank is creating these loans, they're creating money on the spot, but they're not creating the interest. So they created that ten thousand dollars but they're not creating the interest they're going to require you to pay on that $10,000. So what happens? Well, you have to turn and go look for that money elsewhere in the overall money supply. And what's the problem with that? Well, the overall money supply, all that money was created in the exact same way. So what that means is there will always be more debt owed to a bank than there is money in creation kind of funny when you think about it because all the interest that you pay is fake on top of the fake principle that you're paying yes. it's <laughs> which i will describe this is the feudal system yes the the person who creates the fiat money controls where we put our energy and that is where to pay off the interest on the loan you have just taken out it's always it's almost always going to require labor on your part at at some point. So rather than directly putting your time, energy and attention, real money into valuable things in your life, you're going and working your meaningless job so that you can pay off the interest on your loans. And I know some people would argue, well, the benefit is I'm getting a car out of that. So there is some intrinsic value. Well, why, but, is a, why is a car cost $50,000? Yeah, exactly. You know, why or, is anything that we need in our lives, you're not going to be able to pay for it? You know, like fundamental things that we require, such as the ability to travel. So your car, why is it that cars are so expensive that you will need to take a loan out? Mortgages. You need to live in a house. You need a house. But why is it you are, unless you're very fortunate or things have come into being, you are not going to be able to just go buy a house outright without taking the mortgage mm-hmm. out. And with something like a mortgage, especially these these very long-term loans, you run into the issue of the interest in a lot of those cases exceeds the initial principle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like the interest you can be paying and owe the bank yeah. far exceeds. And the other thing about mortgages is your property obviously is the guarantee on that loan. 
But most people don't stay, especially in today's society. Like, we're rare. We haven't moved. So our mortgage, you know, once we pay our mortgage off, it's done. But a lot of people move every 10 to 15 years. And so what you're doing is you're paying off one mortgage, and then you're getting involved in another 30-year mortgage. And then if you decide to move again sell your house, you're going to get involved in another 30-year more. Yep. It's just continually. Constantly creating that money. Um, the This can be uh, proven with like a real simple equation for the, the left brain mathematical types out there. And it's principal divided by principal plus interest. So with that understanding, you will understand that we literally can never pay it all off. Mm -hmm. We can never... We not all of us could go out and pay off the principal plus interest on our loans. And what does that also mean? That means someone has to lose. Someone has to foreclose. Someone has to lose their house. Someone has to default on their loan. Someone has to give up the car because if someone didn't lose, that money would not then be available for other people to take and pay their loans mm -hmm. off with it. I don't. Th I think he, the, in the Money Is Debt documentary, he says there's another way where. They can also like make more money so that people can pay off these older loans. But again, it's the same issue of that money that's newly created still has interest attached to it. So the more and more money you make, the more and more debt and interest is created. So and you're also talking this is a time of prosperity when the bank, the Federal Reserve is allowing money into the economy when they decide to contract and the banks call back on their loans. That's when people really start to suffer from depression because there are, the scarcity of more money is even more prevalent. So, And that's when you default and have to turn yes. over your physical assets to the bank, which they now own. Um, I think this is also uh, – so, so we – I think that was a pretty good description of the mandrake mechanism. Again, we can get into this nitty-gritty detail. None of it really makes any sense. But as long as you understand – the Federal Reserve is buying debt from the government, turning around, creating money out of nothing, giving that to the government so the government can spend it, and then using that total as a justification to create even more fake money to then lend to Federal Reserve banks and continue that process onward. And again, um, those treasury and, and uh, those treasury and bond notes can also be bought from, I think, even like private. Uh, yep. organizations and corporations. Mm -hmm. it so the government, like the Federal Reserve can also print money out of nothing, buying this debt without the government, the U.S. government itself going into more debt. So most of the time, that's how it happens. They mostly own government, U.S. government debt, but they can also create money out of this debt by buying other people's debt, foreign governments debt, corporations debt, and then being able to, to create it on the spot as well. So that... Uh, that is, I think through the discount window, the loan window, the, the central bank deposits or the central bank loans, uh, to the member banks. I think that's the main way they create all that money. And I think there's usually interest tied to that, uh, to that bank loan from the central bank. But again, here's just a good spot to point out that banks make their money through the interest spread. Well, also the interest on literally nothing. They're they're not sacrificing anything to create this money out of anything, but then demanding interest of you uh, because you're their slave. Um, but they, uh, I distracted myself. I wanted to make sure I got the slave term in there. <laughs> um, 
the uh, another way they can mess with the money supply like that is without even doing the discount window thing or the lending thing. Um, they just change the reserve ratio. So this, like I said, this yeah. ratio is completely arbitrary. I, I hear nine to one a lot, but in certain cases, it could be 20 to one. It could be 30 to one. It could be 50 to they, they could just change that. And again, what we're highlighting here is that they have complete control over how much money is going around in circulation. Mm-hmm. They create the prosperity by making the low interest, they create pumping the, the money out, cycle. and then they, they yank it all back. And that's when you yeah. come so, into so your depression. People need to understand the whole recession, depression, recovery, boom, business cycle is totally made up. It is totally dictated by the bank bankers. It is not a natural cycle. It does not naturally occur. It is totally created by the contraction and the release of money into the economy. Yeah, I had written it down out of one of the documentaries. It might have been Fiat Empire. I got the Great Depression. There was a 27% reduction in the money supply between 1929 and 33. No, I heard 33%. It, Some high yeah. percent, but that's why something like the Great Depression happened. Oh, yeah, I have a, there, a lot of information on the Great Depression. There is a big but... contraction in the in the money supply. Um, Actually, well, while you're talking about the Great Depression, we can go into why the Great Depression happened, because that was a huge historical... Before, I have one okay. last... I remember what I had forgotten to say, and that's that the reason that you are... The reason that the bank pays you to store your money there is because your deposit in a bank is a loan. And what the bank is saying, okay, well, we'll give you some shitty little interest, you know, APR interest rate on that money that you've loaned us. And we're going to turn around and loan it. Well, and that's where, again, the, the, the misconception is people think that the bank is loaning out their deposits. But it's not. It's creating money out of nothing. Mm-hmm. They're just using your deposit as the reserve, reserve. justification. Um, but that's how banks will make money off the interest spread in that way. And that's why <laughs> there's been two funny things in researching this because there were two things as a kid I never understood. One was banks. I didn't understand why a bank pays you to store money there. Now I understand where banks make their money through through interest and, and loans. Um, but that always confused me. Banks never made any sense to me of why, how do you make money by paying us to store our money with you? So as a little, as a child, I didn't really get past that, but banks were always funny in that way. And the other one is the federal reserve. I remember it's like that 10th, 11th grade class, your, you know, your two days of monetary discussion. (laughs) If you have that. Um, yeah, I think I was lucky to even have that. And, you know, the teacher is up there. You know, well, government's this omnipotent force that cares and loves about you, and, and they are the ones that are in charge of making the money. And I was sitting there, like, and then at the same time, they're showing the debt clock, and you know, the debt is skyrocketing. And it's like, so why is that debt there? Mm-hmm. If government prints money, if government owns the money and brings fiat money into existence, where is the debt coming from in that way? And that's because, as we've said, when money is, every time money is created, it has interest attached to it. It has debt attached to it. So the national debt, it comes from elsewhere, but it also, it mainly comes from what they owe the Federal Reserve because the Federal Reserve is loaning them money that they created out of nothing. And you have to understand, if there was no debt, there would be no economy. Yeah. Especially in the United States. To pay off all the debt. If everybody woke up tomorrow and paid off all their debts, there would be no economy. Yep. 
And that, uh, I just, while I have it on the head, that is the symbiotic relationship between the central bank cartel and the politicians. The politicians get the benefit of being able to just have as much money as they want on the spot, which they can then turn around and spend. The cartel gets the benefits of everything we said before. They have central control. They have the, the sole authority to print the money. They control the entire banking system that operates in the country. And the politicians benefit from that because they get to exploit the hidden tax of inflation, of the reduction in our purchasing power, because that does that money does technically come from somewhere that value. It comes from removing purchasing power from us. And that's why I'll I'll say it at some point. I have a thing where it's like the dollars drop 90 percent or something like that. You know, it's like a 12 cent. Mm -hmm. note from the past is what it is now. And that's why, because it's that hidden tax of inflation. And the benefit of that to the politicians is the politicians don't need to go raise taxes. It's not a, if you're a politician trying to raise I, taxes. I think it's interesting. Like everybody complains about the money we're sending to Ukraine, you know, whatever the latest amount we're sending. And I don't think people understand that's the reason why we're loaning that money to Ukraine is because that's how they make the money. War is the best money maker there is. And people are like, oh, my tax pay, my tax money is going to that. Or I don't No, That's wars, not why wars would not be able to exist if they were coming from your tax money. Exactly. Because there literally wouldn't be enough money to like you would you would feel it so hard that you that you would say we're not doing like your taxes would have to be raised to the point that you would feel the repercussions and the cost of mm -hmm. war. But by exploiting that system and using that inflation, you don't see taxes increase. Well, that's the other that. thing. People are complaining about high inflation. Why do you think there's high inflation if we're sending money to the Ukraine? Yeah, it now maybe you understand. <laughs> <laughs> that's why. No, it. uh but while I'm on the symbi, we can talk about the depression. Um, well, so speaking of Ukraine, I guess we could go into why the depression. Well, you have to talk about World War One a little to understand the Great Depression. Because can I talk about one more? Sure, I know I'm trying to hold it. off of the. I just I want to wrap up uh, this thought of the symbiotic relationship. Sure. Because the banking cartel cannot exist without the government, in terms of. The government is who puts out the legal tender laws that require everyone to use the fiat currency. If you're a if you're a business operating in the United States, you must accept the fiat currency as a form of payment. Governments allow governments are who give the Federal Reserve their sole authority to print this credit money, this debt money, which then can be exchanged and turned into cash and and, and made into the fiat currency. Governments are also the ones who enforce the debt. Mm -hmm. Governments are the ones who will come up and back uh, contracts and debt with violence. And lastly, is that they are the ones who regulate the system, which by regulate the, the monetary system, I mean, they're the ones who rigidly cast it and make it stay in place. They help to, quote unquote, regulate it. And they're also the ones responsible for most of the propaganda that goes to the public that conceals the fact that this central bank cartel exists. Yeah. Well, don't forget the government, the government benefits. It's a yeah, very mutual relationship. And the politicians benefit, too, because, you know, they're making money off their yeah. stockholders and a lot of these banks and corporations. That but it comes down to reality. In reality, 
the spiritual teaching, you cannot give what you do not have. You cannot loan what you do not have. All right, let's talk about the depression. <laughs> Are you ready? Yeah. <laughs> well, you have to understand World War One a little to understand the Great Depression, especially in the United States. Um, World War One was a creation of the Rothschilds. A lot of people don't understand that, but by this point, we haven't really discussed the Rothschilds. I'm not really going to go into them that much. That's a whole other It's a whole other rabbit hole. But um, what you have to understand is by now, the Rothschilds were very prevalent in British banking, French banking, and German banking. And as the one guy I was watching said, the English Rothschilds financed the British part of the war, the French Rothschilds financed the French part, and then the Germans, French or German Rothschilds finance the German part. And um, you have to understand that war makes the most money for bankers. It, it's just unlimited source of money because any country will pay whatever it needs to to win. And this is the conversion of lead into gold. Yes, exactly. So World War One was essentially a creation for the bankers. Um, they used the United States. Ironically, we went into World War One right after the Federal Reserve Act went into effect. Coincidence? And J.P. Morgan was very instrumental in selling weapons to Europe, uh, primarily England and France, but we also sold stuff to Germany. A lot of people don't understand that. We, Bankers sell to both sides. Yeah, they of the war. sell. They don't. They are not patriotic. They don't care it. who they're financing. And part of World War One, um, which I didn't really realize this until I started doing some research, is that, and I did kind of know this, but the Tsar of Russia at the time, he was very anti-bank. Russia was one of the few countries that in Europe that did not have a central bank, and it, Russia was very powerful then. So the bankers actually conspired to take him out, which they did. We had the communist revolution in uh, 1914. And a lot of people don't understand that it was actually communism is just a banker controlled psyop. Essentially, the bankers controlled all the communist movements in Europe after World War One. Yeah. And by providing... Whole... The finances to Lenin to run, or yeah, run and Russia. all that was happening while the you know the Cold War. Well, the Cold War is after World War Two. Yeah, yeah I, so. I, the, like, but what you're pointing out is the with the Western banks and and the commun like they're they're all exchanging money freely and loaning each other yes. money without there is this none of this like oh well, they're Russia, communists Russia is completely yes, separate no. and we're not going to do business with them. No, we actually yeah no. So after World War One. You know, and the Allies won. Uh, uh, during World War, actually, I should say during World War One, through J.P. Morgan, a lot of European gold came into the United States, which prior to that, we didn't really have a huge gold supply. But we now most majority of the world's gold ended up in the United States. But the thing was, is under Woodrow Wilson, he wanted to do the League of Nations and the beginning, you know, one world government and all this wonderful stuff. Uh, the president after he the next president was Harding, who was a staunch Republican, and he was very anti League of Nations. He was very anti bankers, which, which I did not know. I didn't know much about Harding. And so he started instilling monetary policies that 
created high tariffs for trade, which paid off a lot of our debt. And he also reduced a lot of the federal income tax. And the bankers did not like that. And coincidentally, he died. <laughs> they don't know if it was food poisoning or pneumonia, but but Coolidge, his vice president, was also on board with that. And of course, everybody's heard about the Roaring Twenties, how the United States was so prosperous because of these monetary policies that these two presidents were instilling into the economy. So, of course, the bankers did not like this. And so I believe it was in the mid-1920s, they said, all right, we're going to start releasing all this money into the economy. And they did. A lot of businesses started booming. The United States was very prosperous. And then it was 1929, and there's all kinds of evidence for this. You just got to look into the research. And I always, what we're saying is based on research we did. I always say, do your own research and come up, you know, figure this stuff out for yourself. But I I can't remember if it was 1929, but Benjamin Strong at the time was the governor of the Federal Reserve, and he had very close ties with the Bank of England. And the governor there, and I think his name was Norman de Montreux, he, he was in the Jekyll Hyde book, um, he actually <laughs> came to the United States and they want, England wanted their gold back was basically the gist of the story. So in 1929, it was actually Paul Warburg. It was August of 1929. He said, all right, guys, to all his close banker friends, we're going to, there's going to be collapse. So you need to get your money out. And they started taking their money out and backing it into gold and cash. And then in nine or October 24th, 1929, the, which I don't know what a 24-hour banker call loan is, but the New York bankers all called in these loans. And that's what caused the crash the next day because all of a sudden this money was gone. Well, it it sounds like because they're pulling out their Yeah, they pulled that. They were told to contract the, you know, the economy. So that's what caused the depression. I mean, everybody thinks it was bad money practices on Wall Street and speculation and well, all and this. Well, and this is where it becomes But silly. it wasn't. It was Wall Street. They pulled their, or it was the bankers. They pulled their money out of the system so the money wasn't there anymore. Yeah. And a lot of innocent American people who had been very prosperous and had, you know, in put their money into Wall Street and their banks or whatever, lost all this money. It disappeared. And, um... Yeah, the number I got was between 1929 and 33, 33% of the money supply ended up disappearing. It's just crazy to me that it continues even to this day that we witness these things happen. And and then the Creature of Jekyll Island book, he has, a, you know, the list all the way up to present day of how many recessions and depression yeah. and all the, all these things the Federal Reserve has overseen. And the whole goal of the Federal Reserve is supposed to be to stop to, to stabilize yeah. these things. And it's just well, it crazy created. that even to this day, you know, you hear like you just go listen to some normie talk radio or the media or or some alternative news and everyone's running around blaming everybody except the banking mm -hmm. system, except the government. You know, it's the greedy corporations or it's the greedy individuals. And you just never stop and look at the banking system that controls all of this. Well, the messed up part about it was that all this money disappeared 
but it didn't actually disappear. It just got rerouted. And apparently, because Germany was destroyed during World War One, the American government was rebuilding Germany with the money that was being taken from the American people in the crash of 18 or huh. the Wall Street crash. So we essentially built Nazi Germany. Well, that's not a shock. No, it's not a shock. We're still supporting them in Ukraine to this day. Yeah. (laughs) But um, this is where also, because then FDR came into power in 1933 during the Great Depression. And a lot of his reforms, you know, like the TSA authority, all the programs, the Army Corps of Engineers programs, they only gave the Federal Reserve more power because all of a sudden, and then it was ironically during FDR that the, they finally released the money to start doing these programs. Like this whole was time, the, what were the business programs uh, at that? Uh, oh, I can't. I keep. Th- I'm thinking of NAFTA, but it's not NAFTA. No, it's uh, not NAFTA. He did TSA was the big one, the Tennessee uh, Valley Authority, or not TSA, TVA. The Tennessee Valley Authority was the big uh, I, one. I, I, they beat it into my head in school. I can't remember. You know, like he came. Uh, it was like it was essentially central banking systems, except for individual uh, areas of uh, commerce. You know, like the steel, yeah, the loans. Uh, uh, you, you know what I'm? Yeah. I, I can't think of the name of what it was, but that went. I believe that went to the Supreme Court, and they said there, there's nothing in our laws saying that you can do. Like there is no foundation in our laws to do that, and it just it brought up it brought up the uh, reminder that. The one of the documentaries said, I'm pretty sure that the Federal Reserve has never even had the Supreme Court question. Like it has never mm-hmm. even been questioned to the Supreme Court. Is this constitutional? Is this OK by our charter, by our, our government? It's never even been asked. We, yeah. we haven't even gotten to that point. Why would we do that? <laughs> Why would we question the Federal Reserve? But um, so a lot of FDR's reforms actually empowered the Federal Reserve because all of a sudden he was introducing all this money into the Well, and I imagine they wouldn't have been able to happen without the Federal Reserve. No, This is exactly what the Federal Reserve's for, is for these programs and for war. So, but the whole time, that's the interesting part between 1929 and 1933, where people were literally starving to death in America, the Federal Reserve would not release money into the economy. Like when we truly needed the Federal Reserve to release money into the economy, they did not do so. But then we were talking about this the other night. I was actually shy. This is totally a side note, but I, I think it's a good example of why you should not put your faith in the American government. It's one of billions. <laughs> but in 1933, FDR passed the Gold Confiscation Act. And what that was, was Americans could no longer legally own gold in the United States. Yeah, and, I had never heard of that. Yeah, I had never heard of this either. And apparent, his whole argument was it was supposed to help us get out of the Depression. So Americans were forced to turn in their gold. They were given the, I think it was like $20, $20.1 per ounce or whatever. I mean, they did receive the cash for the gold value, but the government took everybody's gold and they stored it in Fort Knox. Like Fort Knox was solely built to store stolen American money. And what happened to the gold at Fort Knox? Well, between the Federal Reserve and some private corporations, all a majority of the gold, if not all, nobody knows because nobody can audit Fort Knox. Nobody can go inside Fort Knox. It's totally secured. But a lot of that gold went back to Europe. 
at yeah. about higher prices than what the American people were given for their value. It went up like $10 or an ounce or something. So so they did technically pay them, but it was a forceful, we're confiscating yeah, we're this. Con- we'll give you this little payment and then we'll turn around Well, they and gave them it. the value of gold at that time was like $20 an ounce, something similar to that. And then as soon as they collected all the gold, they raised it to like $30 an ounce <laughs> or some ridiculous thing. So don't trust the government. because yeah, controlled markets. They... Um, but where was I going with this? So, but then we go into World War II. I had wanted to just interject this. Uh, it was the Spirit of Money documentary. I didn't watch. I watched the first five minutes of it. And you were just talking about, you know, the starving kids in America that the Federal Reserve would not release. But the money, money. was going to Germany. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the guy, he came out with this uh, with this thing in that first five minutes that... I don't disagree with, but he said that in today's world, any child that starves to death was a child that was murdered. Mm-hmm. That, There's no reason. That yeah. there is no reason for that in today's world with today's technology, with today's resources. And I just that it that had triggered that that memory for me. And I I think that's a most that would trigger most people. But that is a. I, I can't say that that's not an yeah, that, no and reason. that's not just for the United States. That's anywhere in the world. Yeah, there's no reason for poverty. No, no reason for no, poverty no. whatsoever. It's created. It's totally created. And the the poor are the ones who pay the worst mm-hmm. with the with the hidden tax of inflation. The ones who are just at that that line of just surviving, just making by. They're the ones, and they're who the ones suffer. taking the loans out yep. to pay for the things they need. Which I imagine is part of the keeping them in that position. Is mm-hmm. they're the you you have to take loans out. You have just to survive. You ha- you're always going to have to continually take loans out to uh, to be able to exist when you're in a poor position. Actually, like that. I'm wondering like those uh, places that will cash your checks. I wonder how they benefit from. I uh, just side thought, but yeah, I, I don't know. You know what I'm. Yeah, yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure they can loan money like that. I don't. Anyways, so where was I? I then we went into World War Two. Um, of course, World War Two created a lot of money for a lot of people in power. Um, I, I thought this was every nation that was involved in World War Two, and there were a lot of nations. Their debt multiplied exponentially like it just went through the roof which created all kinds of money into the world economy actually well at this point the or well was the imf after this was yeah this is this is out of world war that's so i'm not really gonna go too much into world war ii but um it did do two things it a created um the imf world bank at the britain woods conference that 1944. was 1944, and it also created the world or Cold War, which was another source of money for the bankers because of the weapon built. I mean, we weren't technically at war, but you're funding yeah. things like Lockheed Martin and Boeing, and that uh, money was being produced that way. Um, I did find a little. I don't know how much information you have on the IMF or the World Bank, but um, it was it was created to be the world central banking cartel. Yeah, kind of the was, next uh, step from the re- you know Federal Reserve. The Bretton Woods meeting happened in the U.S. and it was going to be built off the idea of the the Federal Reserve. Mm-hmm. Uh, just kind of that that style. I think just uh, you know central banking has existed elsewhere, but I think the Federal Reserve specifically as the concealment aspect of it of of it, people don't even know it's a central bank controlling everything. 
and they wanted to they wanted to take that to the global scale and uh there's like the Edward Griffin and the creature from Jekyll Island he views this as because the US was paying and I I'm sure still is paying most of the cuz the IMF is made up of uh the member countries well i found this interesting i didn't know this but there's actually a world currency did you know that it's called so they speci- did, yeah they... there it's called special drawing rights and then it was what 1968 was when the us government allowed the federal reserve to accept these special drawing rights hmm. as currency into that the federal reserve could accept and that is what opened up the door for the you know Basically, the Federal Reserve and the Bank of England are the most two influential banks for the World Bank. They pretty yeah. much control everything. So, but it's these special drawing rights, which we can go in. I don't know how much you want to go into. This is how we get small countries into debt with these loans. Through the World Bank, bank which uh, like the IMF is the fund of which the World Bank pulls from. Mm-hmm. And it's also... It's kind of it's very similar to the Federal Reserve in that it's concealed to not the European Union, uh, United Nations. Yeah. Like people think the World Bank is a part of the United Nations, but it's very similar to the Federal Reserve System or any central like the Bank of England where it's it is it is privately owned and it is separate from that. Um but yeah, we don't need to get too much into this. This is more like new world ordery yeah, global so. control type stuff. I I heard the main points from Edward Griffin were you ha- we had to get off of the international gold, gold exchange chain, yeah. because the problem with the gold exchange and which I I'm assuming how I because I'm having a hard time remembering but I imagine they take one currency see how much gold you can buy with it and then use that that gold amount as to seeing how much you can buy with that other currency. And then that's the exchange. You exchange the currencies through gold in terms of how much gold you can buy. And this is a problem if you're the Federal Reserve or the Bank of England because you have a fiat currency that's worth nothing and you're constantly inflating all the time. And gold is scarce. And gold is scarce. So you, as these uh, central banks are manipulating their currencies, you would see that reflect in the gold exchange. So one of the uh, main goals of the IMF was to get rid of the gold exchange. And one way in which they did that was I believe what he says is they used the American dollar as their backing because at this point the American dollar was still gold backed, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, well, yeah, until Nixon, did, I think it was nineteen seventy two. Yeah, so it Nixon. wasn't it wasn't that long ago when it was removed from the mm-hmm. gold backing. So at this point, the U.S. dollar was gold backed, and that's how they they sold it. Uh, is, uh, you know, well, we're not going to use the gold exchange, but we're going to use the American dollar. The American dollar is backed in gold. So we're still using gold. And then obviously, as you said, eventually the American dollar became a true fiat currency like anything else. Mm -hmm. And at that point, you have a a world central bank operating through fractional reserve banking on a completely fiat currency. And as you were, this is, I I don't remember much of the details, but Griff, he has like a several pages of just examples of the IMF coming in and oh, yeah. just screwing a country, country. just yep. making it absolutely worse, funding horrific uh, dictators and terrible organizations. Causing Africa and South death. America are the two big. Times. Yeah. A lot of money being put to, you know, to the places that are destroying the forests and rainforests and things like that. Like a lot of investment into that kind of stuff. Just, uh, 
just the I he points like the IMF is never leaving a country in a better place. And mm -hmm. that's uh, and like you said, putting those uh, smaller countries in debt to uh, putting them under the the central bank cartel umbrella of the whole world in which it'll be very similar to the Federal Reserve System in the United States, except it will be all of the other countries underneath the few powerful countries. Mm -hmm. And uh, Griffin had described the IMF as being like the because the America was at the time the power like we had a massive amount of land, a massive amount of production, and a massive amount of people. Like there was a lot of, of power going on in America coming out of World War II. And the IMF was the extraction of all of that surplus into, you know, the communism, the socialist aspect of bringing all these countries into alignment. Mm -hmm. So that's one way of looking at it. You and I were also saying you could also look at it as an expansion of the American, American slash Empire, yeah. English empire, um, which I'm kind of leaning towards that now that I said I'm starting to think of money as representing the empire. So if the IMF is turning around and using the U.S. dollar as the global currency, that was an expansion of the empire in which then it also just makes sense that I imagine this happened in uh, in like Rome, for instance, where as Rome is rapidly expanding and, and doing all this military action and investment in these foreign, you know, continuing to expand, a lot of issues begin to develop in the central air. Isn't that part of uh, Carl Quigley's like, you know, the Carol Quigley. Yeah, the three, because he, he, like, he doesn't have three spots in the civilization. Like there's the original spot and then. Uh, I don't remember exactly. Yeah, but... I, I read that, but it was a while ago. <laughs> yeah, towards the end of the book, <laughs> book, you read that a long time ago. Yeah, it's taken but... me a while to get through that one, but yeah, I understand. Yeah, there's different phases of civilization, but um, because I, I mean, I'm sure, like you know, you've been in this existence much longer than I am. I'm sure that's what you have seen during your lifetime. You have seen the American Empire in terms of this home land area being sold out, being yeah. extracted by the bankers. And just seeing the continual degradation. Well, just looking of at that. things like, because you know, like look, let's look at the credit card. When I was your age, there was no such thing as a credit card. You weren't getting them in the mail. No, we weren't getting them. There pre approved was, credit. Well, maybe by your <laughs> by the time it was your age, that was when they were first starting to come out. But my parents didn't have credit cards. I don't even know if my parents had loans. If, honestly. We rented the house we lived in. I should have asked my mom because they bought their own car. Like we always had used cars, so yeah, they were. Yeah, what was a car like three to five thousand? Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't even that much. I can't. I'd have a heart. I'd have to ask my mom. Maybe but, like two grand. Yeah, buy a new car off the lot. Yeah, but well, we always had used cars, so they probably didn't even pay that much. But um, you know, you just didn't have the like that is crazy now. And when like when um your cousin Nick just bought their house. They pay like two hundred and twenty five thousand dollars for this house, mm -hmm. and over something that is required to to live. You no, know, I just it's crazy I, the amount of debt that has increased in my lifetime. You know, it's evil, evil, yeah. and it's not necessary. That's the sad part about it. None of it, this is all to benefit a few people making money. That's yeah, what this we are whole all system. operating out of the scarcity, which I'll talk about when I talk about money. I kind of wanted to. We kind of, I'm kind of going back a little bit here. I just we're talking about loans, we're talking about debt. I just wanted to talk quickly about because we've had, we haven't really talked about bailouts yet. Yeah. So I wanted to talk about um, in the creature of Jekyll Island, he talks about loans because the banks are interested 
in loans. Ne- the bank never wants a loan paid off. The ideal yeah. situation for a bank is where you're in the position to where you're probably just barely paying the interest on the loan. Mm-hmm. You're never touching the principal. And a good of example the loan. is car payments. Yeah. I mean, how many people actually ever own their car where it's fully paid you're off? You're just continually, you're just continually getting it. a new car. Um, and most of what I'm going to talk about right now is going to involve the larger loans, like loans to th- to the other countries, countries uh, and to massive corporations. And the first thing that will happen when the corporation or country says we can't pay anymore, the bank says, oh, well, no worries. We'll roll the loan over. <laughs> we'll give we'll, you some more money. We will lend you more money so that you can then pay the interest. But now you have to pay both loans with interest. Mm-hmm. So you're... Uh, the bank. So you're using the loan to pay your old loan. Yeah. And then when that's insolvent, they loan you even more money to. And this is a massive step forward in the goal, which is having you perpetually paying yep. to always have the loan going. Because when you pay a loan off, the money goes away mm-hmm. other than the interest that you then gave the bank, which came from elsewhere. But that is separate from the principal of the loan. When you when you pay off a loan or you default on a loan, that money, well, actually, I think when you default, that's different. And they don't want you to default because that money was still newly created and now it's out in existence. So they might still have liability and responsibility over that money if it defaults. Mm-hmm. And that's why we'll get into things like bailout. So they either roll the loan over, which is a big step towards the continual uh, keep the loan going. And they, they they can do that multiple times. Like you can do that several times until basically you get to the point where the interest is so large that it is in excess of your entire corporate earnings mm-hmm. or the entire tax base of your country. So you owe the bank so much interest that it is more than your entire corporate earnings. So at this point, you say, man, I cannot pay. This is crazy. So then the bank will do a, a rescheduled loan. And when they reschedule the loan, they will say it's usually I think it's usually a, a thing of two uh, factors. They lower the interest and then they extend the payment period. So, again, the goal is just to keep you paying, keep you in this cycle. Uh, and what this does is it alleviates the burden off of the the borrower, like in, on the moment in the spot that the interest is a little lower and it, they have more time to pay. But they're still going to be perpetually paying this loan. And then eventually the borrower realizes that the borrower realizes I will never be able to pay this loan back. And this is where we go to the classic, the good old protect the public play. (laughs) So this is when, because again, we're dealing with such astronomical numbers here that this is also why banks enjoy large loans, because this protect the public play can only happen when you're dealing with absolutely absurd numbers in in large corporations. But this is where then the bank, you know, the uh, there's a name for it. You know, you're like the loan officer, you know, the loan officer of the bank and the corporate uh, owner or whoever is going from the corporation. They go to the government and say, hey, government, we need some federal assistance. The borrower can't pay. And if he can't pay, Really bad things are going to happen. <laughs> the economy's going to crash. Thirty thousand people are going to lose their jobs. The economy will go into a recession. You know, all this bad, this bad stuff will happen. And again, these are such astronomical numbers that you can convince the public of this. You can say, "Well, this bank is too big to fail. If this bank failed, it would bring everything down." And in banking, and that's where again, that's actually kind of true. Like the way the system works, if they did let a bank fail, that's very large. 
it actually would kind of catastrophically bring the whole pyramid scheme yes. down. Um, but any so with the corporations, and again, this could I think this could also be a government or you know another government or a corporation. They come to the government, and then the government will do one of two things: the government will either the government, if they agree to it, is a basically becoming a co-signer on the loan. And they'll either directly give them money on the spot again through printing it from the Federal Reserve to then make loan payments or they'll simply give a credit to the loan, which means now all of a sudden banks are fine to lend the corporation more money because they have credit given in a co-signer of the federal U.S. government. And why is that valuable? Well, the federal U.S. government has hundreds of million dollars, hundreds of millions of taxpayers mm-hmm. that at any point in time they can say, well, no worries, we can pay this loan off because we'll either just print the money or we'll pull it from the taxpayer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is the essence of the idea of bailout when you when you hear the you know, the, the bailout of the banks uh, coming from going to the government saying if the losses are so severe, you know, we need to protect the American taxpayer protect the American and uh, you need to help bail us out. And the bailouts are truly crazy in many ways because I don't want to talk much about the FDIC, but the FDIC, the whole, you know, $100,000 deposit insurance, um, you know, that's supposed to be the goal of uh, the FDIC is to protect the depositor. But what we see when once something is classified as a bailout, the FDIC which doesn't have the FDIC works in the same way that the banks do, which is we only have a small reserve of our total liability. So if even just one bank, like if one bank went under and needed the FDIC to pay all their deposits, even just one bank could completely wipe Wipe out out the the reserves, you know, quote, again, it's fucking nonsense money, the reserves of the the federal, the FDIC. In which case, the FDIC turns around and says to the Federal Reserve, you know, we need more money. So print us money. Then we can give it to the depositors, which, again, is causing inflation. Uh, But with bailout, when once the bank is bailed out, this is where the FDIC does not only cover insured deposits, which an insured deposit is not only one hundred thousand dollars, but it also has to be local in the U.S., whereas with a bailout, the FDIC will pay everything and a lot of these bi- these massive banks have a lot of investment outside of the United mm-hmm. States by foreign investors so the FDIC will come in and pay all of it and this is uh when you when you look at how this this system works you're seeing that the FDIC and this protection exists to to protect the stockholders and owners of the mm-hmm. bank. Whereas with typical, unless I'm wrong, with typical liquidation of a, of a business, the la- the very last people that receive anything from that are the owners and stockholders. Like those are the people who lose. Like it was your business that failed. Yeah. You're the last ones to be repaid. The creditors, the people that were doing business, everybody else gets paid before you. But the point of a bailout, the point of this, quote unquote FDIC insurance is to step in and to pay it all off. Now, bailouts don't always happen in that way. There's there's th- there's two other ways. One he calls a payoff, 
Whereas the FDIC will just pay off the depositors and then that bank is liquidated and, and, so, yeah. and toward that is typically your small banks with not a lot of political power. A medium sized bank is more likely to have what's called a sell off. This is where they will pay off the depositors or I don't even know if they always pay off the depositors. There's like a seamless transition with a sell off. It is sold to a larger bank. Yeah. Usually the customers don't even. That's like when you get mergers like Chase Manhattan. Yeah. Or... The customer doesn't even know that mm-hmm. anything has changed. They're just a uh, seamless transition of, of in one bank out the other. The bailouts only happen with the largest of the banks that have the real political power, the political weight to throw around. And they're also just so astronomically large that they can make that claim of. Yeah, like Bank of America. Yeah, if this bank fails, it's going to bring everything down. It's too big to fail. Um, I know that was that was kind of backtracking. I just I had wanted to. No, that's a good point. To to bring those things up. uh, Just enforces how silly the whole system truly is. Yeah. And uh, which did we not mention that that was? Yeah. Wow. I don't think we mentioned that 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 was one of the biggest reasons of starting the Federal Reserve is to justify placing the onus on the taxpayer. The bailout is saying is putting the money on the the, Federal Reserve Act was that guarantee of the income of the federal of the taxpayer. Yeah. That if if the bank runs into trouble, the taxpayer will foot the bill and and pay it out. Which is is crazy where we are paying for their exploitation and their failure of their crazy system. Uh, so where do you want to go next? We were talking about the, the IMF before I went on a tangent there. No, that's all right. I'm, why don't you start going into um, – let's go in the more uh, occultist part of why. Why is this all going on? Yeah. Um. We've talked about usury. Um, the one guy uh, in the Money is Debt documentary brought up the point that it's like that is the ideal now. Whereas like the the old view was like, so if you were if you were trying to make money out of money, you know, you were almost like viewed as like a thief, basically. You know, you're, you're tra- a yeah. parasite. You're you're uh, not working and exerting labor to make the money yourself. You're trying to have money. Okay. Well, anybody who tried pulling this scheme off that wasn't a bank would be arrested. It's fraud. Yeah. (laughs) Plain and simple. It's fraud. Deception and fraud. But it is just interesting that he he points out that like in the modern world, that is a literal ideal of people is to that that dream of sitting on the beach and having your money make money for Mm -hmm. you. Like this is a dream of people now. And that's part of how you were saying, you know, usury used to literally mean anybody who charges interest on anything where now it's uh, much more morally acceptable of, well, it depends on how much interest it, uh, it has. All right. Once I'm kind of going all over the place here, but, um, we didn't mention, cause we're not going to go into the IMF much more. I do want to just mention the Fabian socialists and I have one Mm. quote here. And this quote is going to be all you need to know to uh, understand the understand <laughs> where the Fabian socialists are at. The the Charlotte Web House, um, I think is the name of it. Uh, I think they're in England. Oh, the Chat- Chatham House. 
Yeah. Shadow uh, look up a picture of the big glass thing they have on it. They have a, a sheep's or a wolf in sheep's clothing. Um, the Fabian socialists are about bringing world socialism into play through through government and slow world order. The yeah, world order. they're they're not like the communists that want to have a violent revolution and cut heads off and do it right away. They want to be more slow and and boil the frog in the pot type of uh, type of method. And uh, this is what they're all about. So this is a, a quote by George Bernard Shaw. He was uh, an early leader in the Fabian socialist movement. Under socialism, you would not be allowed to be poor. You would be forcibly fed, clothed, lodged, taught, and employed whether you liked it or not. If it were discovered that you had not character and industry enough to be worth all of this trouble, you might possibly be executed in a kindly manner. But whilst you were permitted to live, you would have to live well. So that's the... I think that just that one quote alone gives you an idea of who the Fabian socialists are and uh, what their ideals are on the world stage. Um, it does not sound like people that I want in control of me. No, you could even extend that to that's why we have all the social welfare programs that we have today. Welfare, Social Security. Yeah. Even though not everybody benefits from it. I mean, there's still huge portions of poverty in the United States and in the world, but I guess I'm I'm gonna kind of before I we wrap things up and I talk about money itself and the religion of money, uh, I'm gonna do just like a little quote section here. Uh, this is by Bauer Mayer Rothschild. This is a classic quote. Uh, you're familiar oh, uh, with this yep. one. Give me control of the economics of a country, and I care not who makes her laws. The few who understand the system will either be so interested from its profits or so dependent on its favors that there will be no opposition from that class. Um, and that's just, again, highlighting where the real power is. Um, I wrote it down in here. We didn't say it yet, but, you know, you talk about real power in this country. The Federal Reserve decide, controls how much your car payment is, how much groceries cost and how much your rent's going to be. The Federal Reserve controls all of those things through the manipulation of the money supply. So who do you think has real power? Especially, I don't know if we like exactly said it, but when we said the, the Federal Reserve is a private institution, that means there is no government oversight. And if they're lending the money to the government, which do you think go, comes first? Mm -hmm. <laughs> the Federal Reserve or the United States government? We also... Um, a kind of pedantic little thing, but the name. I wanted to laugh at the name. Oh, Federal Reserve. <laughs> anytime the government. It's not federal or have it's any reserves. Not federal, and there's no reserves. Mm -hmm. So anytime, and this just goes to a classic thing of when there's a bill or there's a there's some organization the government's trying to create. Whatever they name it, it's going to be exactly the, the opposite. opposite. Yeah. And this is like David Icke's uh, upside down world where it's like the institutions that say they'll bring peace are the ones that bring war. It, we, everything is the opposite of, of what they, it says they are. Um, yeah, I'm going to just continue with a little bit of a, a quote section. This one is from uh, Robert Hemphill, credit manager of the Federal Reserve Bank in Atlanta. And he says, if all the bank loans were paid, no one could have a bank deposit. And there would not there would not be a dollar of coin or currency in circulation. This is a staggering thought. 
We are completely dependent on the commercial banks. Someone has to borrow every dollar we have in circulation, cash or credit. If the banks create ample synthetic money, we are prosperous. If not, we starve. We are absolutely without a permanent money system. When one gets a complete grasp on the picture, the tragic absurdity of our hopeless situation is almost incredible. But there it is. <laughs> it's funny he says it's hopeless because if you really are aware of what's going on, it doesn't need to be hopeless. You just have to prepare no. for it. But anyways. Just to be – yeah, to understand, to educate yourself on on what you're uh, – the thing you're devoting your life to, your God, which I'll talk about in a second. Uh, I liked this game comparing it to, or this uh, quote comparing it to a child's game. Uh, one thing to realize about our fractional reserve banking system is that like a child's game of musical chairs, as long as the music is playing, mm -hmm. there are no losers. And that's the whole, you got to just keep the, the money machine going. Yep. You have to keep making the new money to service the old loans and to to keep it to keep it going and i like that uh again i don't think we exactly articulated this but um in the book the creature of jekyll island he states that every dollar every all the checkbook money all the credit like all the dollar everything of the money uh, every dollar of the money supply has interest attached to it mm-hmm so every dollar in existence is having interest paid to it to a bank. It might not be from you. It might not be from the employer that gave that you earned the money from. But at some point in the chain, that money is having interest paid to the banks, which means the banks literally control and own everything in that way. And they also control essentially you and the servitude that you uh, provide for them because you they are controlling – uh, where your energy goes by making you work these meaningless jobs to then pay the interest on your your money or someone else's money. I think it's um, like a few years ago, I actually was able to pay off all my debt, which I'm back in debt again. But it was really interesting because as soon as you pay off all your debt, guess what happens? All of a sudden, all your credit card allowance, like the limits go up. All of a sudden, my I was getting like car, the, my car where I bought my car they want me to buy a new car like they were just all old, like vultures oh like, yeah well, what I, she doesn't have any debt right now we gotta I know that. that from firsthand because I I opted out of the state indoctrination camp of college and if you do not have debt which that's how they kind of start you along the path mm -hmm. as you take out the college debt if you have debt, you're not going to get debt. And yeah. I had a guy at like a car uh, place say that to me. And I was like, all right. <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> Thank you yeah. for explaining to me well, how ass backwards this is. When we I'm out of here. Looking at campers, the one place we went to, the guy, I can't remember what he said, but uh, I didn't. We were talking like to the guy and we said, well, what if you just paid cash for that? He goes, oh, you can't do that. You have to get the loan <laughs> and then you can pay it back in full. But you have to take the loan take out the first. Take the loan out first and then like, pay what? it out. <laughs> well, we're not buying our RV here, but whatever. All right. Last quote. I won't belabor it any longer. Um, this quote is one of the best that I uh, had seen. It's by jo uh, Hosea Stamp, uh, director of the Bank of England from 1928 to 1941. And he says, banking was conceived in iniquity and born in sin. Bankers owned the earth. Take it away from them, but leave them the power to create money. 
And with the flick of a pen, they will create enough money to buy it back again. Take this great power away from them and all the great fortunes like mine will disappear and they ought to disappear. For then this would be a better and happier world to live in. But if you want to continue to be a slave of the bankers and pay the cost of your own slavery, then let the bankers continue to create money and control credit. I like how these quotes coming from from them, <laughs> from I know directly from the source. <laughs> uh, yeah, interesting. All right, so I think we've we've covered the Federal Reserve. Let's talk a little bit about money, uh, just as a religion and kind of the occult aspects of it. This is what I had wanted to kind of start with, but we naturally kind of got right into things. But that worked out well. Um, all right, first. Let a lot of this is going to be kind of talking about similar things that, that we had already discussed. But let's first understand that the only power money has is the faith that we put into it, the belief that we put into it. And just like with authority, even if you are free in the mind of money, you still are going to have to use money to play the game to because everyone else around you believes in it. Government violence will be inflicted upon you because people believe in authority, even though you might not believe in authority. We are we are affected by the thoughts of other people in that way. Now, as I said at the very beginning, money does not exist in nature. Money is a construct of man. It only exists in his mind. Um, a lot of people will argue that money is simply a tool and that it can also be used for good. And to that point, I would say, you know, you could replace the monetary system with pretty much literally anything else other than what we have currently, and it would be better. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say that it wouldn't be because what we got going on right now isn't working. Is madness. It's actual madness. Um, the, but the next thing to understand is money is the largest religion on the planet Earth. Christianity, as uh, as Mark Passio would say, Christianity can only dream of having as much followers as the religion of money does. Because what do all all three of the followers of the big three religion do? What do they participate in? Money. Money is everywhere. Money is the global religion. Money exists to usurp God. And for most people, you would ask them, like, are you religious? And most people would say no. But just and a lot of this stuff is also going to be the exact same thing with authority that we're it's not real in nature, but people believe in it. And they are the largest religions on earth. How many people I know in my life that money is their God? Mm -hmm. And well, everybody. Except yeah. Them. I... That uh, and that is where the mind control comes into play, because when money is your God, you're not going to take any action in the world unless money is involved in the process. Um, also, everything we've talked about today is a perfect example of how differences in knowledge levels, knowledge is used as a weapon. When you do not understand how the system works that we just described, it is used to enslave you. And it's only until you come to an understanding of how it works that you can empower yourself to move past it and you under, you're at the same knowledge level. So when you have a, uh, I'm trying to look at the best way to say it, it's just like the difference in knowledge, that's where you can uh, be exploited and, and it can be used against you as a weapon. Um, the other interesting thing with money I find, just like authority, is how unquestioned it is. And just like authority, when you discuss it with people, 
it triggers them <laughs> so hard for you to even just like philosophize about a world without money. Yeah. It absolutely triggers them. And that's part of my my gut telling me that money and authority are very intertwined and that honestly, I would see money as being an even deeper rooted in the human psychology than than authority. I think it would be harder to get people to move past money than it would be to get them to understand they don't need a, a violent slave master. Um, but they're they're very intertwined and the emotional response you get from people is just absolutely crazy. And again, this is something that we devote our lives to. Most of you are spending your day working for money. And this is yet yeah, it's one of the most unquestioned things out there that not only as we've discussed today, how it's created, how it works, where it comes from, but also just the idea of using it at all. And you need it for everything. You need it to feed yourself, to house yourself to pay your utility. You need it for every aspect of your life. You can't go through a day without spending money in some way, yeah. shape, or form. You have to participate have to in partake. it. Even if you don't want to, you have to participate. And that is part of that being born into debt where you cannot just exist. You're going to need to make money in order to simply exist. Uh, and why is the monetary uh, system a religion? Well, uh, it's because it holds us back. Religare. It, it is something that stifles humanity in my mind and it is exploited by you know all the people we just we, we didn't talk about the people too much but rather the system that they employ these people are predators they are psychopathic they are exploiters of their own species and you really can't get much lower than that um real quick i wanted to talk about some green language around money green language is some interesting occurrences that are what most people would call coincidences, but they're they're usually pretty interesting. So let's first talk about currency. What does currency sound an awful lot like? Current, Current. energy, the flow of energy. Um, also, what I'm going to be describing is that these green this green language used around uh, economics and money is used to. Uh, try to entrap you psychologically into placing value in money because as we've said, the only power of the money, especially fiat money, is the belief in it and you must, uh, so the occult needs you to to place your belief in it and these are going to be all things that kind of subconsciously affect you. The next one, I like this one a lot, money, mono, I, uh, mono for one, I obviously, I. So here they want you to associate money with the third eye, with your pineal gland, which uh, is what is in the spiritual uh, teachings is when you have the balanced brain, you have the strong heart, your third eye awakens. And this is done through love and care and balance. And so they want you to associate these things. They want you to associate money with being a replacement to your real third eye. They, they, it's something that can be simply replaced. Look on the dollar bill sometime. Yeah, I... I figured that if we did an episode on uh, symbols, uh, mm -hmm. uh, is it symbology? I, I, I have no idea. Yeah. Um, but looking into, yeah, that's a good point. Pull out a dollar bill and look at the crazy talisman that it is, a series of symbols that you carry around and reference at all times. Um, there's a lot of craziness on there. Um, banks. Uh, what does uh, What is water? What does energy flow between? They flow through in no between bank. banks, oh, I never thought the that. banks of yeah. a river, an energy bank. Um, again, just another coincidence. Then we got the bill, the dollar bill. 
Bill, Bell, Bale, mm-hmm. Bull. You know, Satan is usually depicted as uh, as a, a bullish beast. Um, this is the the dark sun god, the the Illuminati, the illuminated in the dark sun that that, that they worship. Um, you're going to pay your bills with bills. Uh, fiat. Uh, this was another one Mark Passio brought up that I thought was really interesting, and it really indicates the the state of mind these controllers are coming from, and that is the word fiat. And I don't know if it's Latin or if it's Hebrew. I did look it up and it, it is there. And the first, the it's not the first word in the Bible, but the first words associated to God in the Bible are fiat lux, which means let there be light. These are the first words of God. And so that's where, uh, I don't know if we had really defined fiat, but fiat is so be it, let it be. And they are they're saying that their currency is they are gods we can just let it be it is and we will bring it into existence we are gods over you these people think that they are your gods uh and they have you enslaved and your ignorance is what is allowing it to happen the last cool thing and this is about american dollars specifically or us federal reserve notes is the uh is the color color green uh, the color green's really interesting in that one, it, it represents the Anahata sh- uh, heart chakra, which is obviously, you know, your love, care, compassion, empathy. Um, the heart chakra is also the middle of the seven chakras. So it indicates a position of balance. Um, green is also the most abundant color in nature. So it's again, it's trying to associate money with a natural thing. And Green is also not only the most abundant color in nature, but to our visible light spectrum, it is in the dead center. It's between the infer- the, the red low infrared and the high blue ultraviolet, and in between those lies green. So all of these uh, are just very interesting coincidences that uh, to make our, our money that color. And, and again, it, it's because they want us to associate they want you to associate money with love, care, balance, nature, the sacred feminine, the mother, the life force, energy. And this is where you'd get someone to say, like, well, if we didn't have money, how would we live? <laughs> yeah, we because they want you to associate money with with life energy. And that's what I mean by money has usurped God. Money has taken that that life energy from people and that most people would not even act in the world unless money is involved. And everything I just described are also things that we all lack in the current world, especially, you know, something like love. We are all seeking love that we lack. And that's why, again, all of this exit, all of this uh, green language and kind of sim- uh, symbols exist to get us to associate money with that love and, to, and that care and to seek it out through money. And, yeah, I think that's pretty much everything I wanted. To, and this isn't even going into the symbols. I really just talked about some green language, the color of the bill. But look at a dollar bill. Just take a good look at it. You'll see the third eye above the pyramid. It's missing. Like in Freemasonry, I think it's called the keystone. There's a missing stone. So it's like severed from the rest of the pyramid. Um, but that this is where I view I view money as as mind control. Money controls the actions of what you'll do in the world. And... That is especially uh, terrible when it everything we discussed today of it being a centrally controlled money supply that can be manipulated for any 
for any purposes. And that's why I find it especially terrible that we convert our real money, our time, energy, and attention. We convert because all of those possibilities, an infinite range of possibilities of what we could do with that, we bring it into this single monolithic currency that is completely valueless and, and it's absurd. It's crazy. And we got to stop believing in it because at the end of the day, we use money to enslave ourselves. The bankers can make as much money available. They can create all the loans they want. But until we partake in it, we give it value. We participate in it. We enslave ourselves through it. No, I agree. All right. I feel like I had one other thing I wanted to say, but I think we've covered everything. And uh, anything you wanted to say at the end? No. I think I would just invite everybody to, especially older people, because, well, I guess younger, you just are kind of the exception to the rule because you don't have any real debt. But just sometimes just stop and look at your debt. I do this periodically and I say, oh, I can't believe I've done this because I'm guilty as much as anybody else. But look at your credit card. Like if you got a credit card balance with a couple thousand dollars, ask yourself, okay, why do I have a couple thousand? What, what did I get out of this? And the, the the reality is nothing that's of use. It's mostly ridiculous stuff that you don't need. Yeah. It 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 exists to make things like taxation easier. Yes. So rather than line up to give government your physical goods, it's just disappearing out of your paycheck before you even see it. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it streamlines that whole control process. And again, any monetary system, it operates out of fear, scarcity and lack. And just that idea of saying, you know, the because that's what like a gold boy would say is he'd say, well, gold's great because it is limited. And it's like just by starting with that mindset of that, we need a limited scarce object as our currency to have value. You're, you're already showing that you're in this mindset of lack of, of not abundance mm -hmm. and I find this crazy because I look out in nature and nature is abundant and redundant. In, in if we leave her alone, yes. Yeah, in all these ways. <laughs> it's only until we start messing with it and trying to control and dominate it. So, and this is, I mean, a lot of this uh, revolves similarly around energy. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the scarcity uh, mindset is driven from the scarcity of energy, which again, you know, you have to pay for it through through wires rather than having direct access to the infinite amount of energy all around us. Um, but yeah, that's money in the Federal Reserve. What are we doing for the next episode? Do you know? I, we have pretty much two options left, food and uh, pharmaceutical. <sighs> I feel like the pharmaceutical would tie closer to this, but I feel like food would lead better into the, the pharmaceutical. pharmaceutical. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I guess we're doing we're gonna do food next. Uh, let food by, be thy medicine. Uh, all right. So this was episode three. I think it's gonna be titled "Money in the Federal Reserve: Modern Day Feudalism." It was. Uh, I was listening to a, a Dross podcast, a movie review podcast. And for some reason, they were talking about economic systems and he's describing the change in economic systems and he gets up to feudalism and then he just stops and he's like, well, so where did we go after feudalism? Well, I'm not really sure. And it's because we never left. We never left. This yep. is still feudalism. <laughs> this is still slavery. Government is violence. Government is immoral. And stop believing in money.